let's give a big Texas howdy. Welcome, Tim Staples. Am I on? All right. Well, welcome, gentlemen. It's going to be a glorious day, God willing. I got a whole bunch of commercials to give you real quick before we get started. I do want to mention, though, uh, as I told the folks last night, sometimes I sound like a used car salesman, but I, that's all right, because I unashamedly will say I want every one of y'all to take something home with you. In fact, if you can't buy anything, we're going to give you something. When you leave, we're going to have folks placed at the door to give everybody a free copy of Pillar of Fire, Pillar of Truth. And we've got some more free stuff back at our tables. I want y'all to do me a favor. Before you leave here, buy everything. <laughs> All right, we'll just leave it at that. Buy Trent stuff, by the way. You're about to hear Trent Horn this afternoon. And, and to be honest with you, he's younger than I am. He's smarter than I am a better writer than I am, a better speaker than I am, but other than that, he's nothing. <laughs> By everything on the tables, I want to do recommend on, on my table, uh, I'm going to recommend three books, two CDs, and two DVDs. The reason is some folks like to read, some folks like to watch, and some folks like to listen. So you, you have no excuse, no matter which one you are. Number one, my newest book, Behold Your Mother, an exhaustive apologetic that deals with every question you can imagine on the Blessed Virgin Mary and more. In fact, one of the most important contributions I think I make in that book is not only giving you the apologetic responses for the Marian doctrines, but I show you why each one is crucial for your spiritual life. In fact, I have a whole chapter on the perpetual virginity of Mary and why that dogma matters for your spiritual life. Nuts and bolts, practical, it's not real thick, not intimidating, a practical how-to guide to evangelism, chapters on Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, uh, one on an atheist on the problem of evil, an evangelical at a grocery store. We got all different kinds in here and practical step-by-step how-tos to respond. The Essential Catholic Survival Guide is the third book I'm going to recommend. 70 chapters that deal with just about everything you can imagine in biblical apologetics. So those will be my three books that I recommend. My DVDs, and believe me, we got more. These are the ones I'm recommending immediately. Why be Catholic? And I'll warn you, this is only for atheists or agnostics or members of any of the world religions, Islam, Buddhists, Hindus, any of the Eastern Aboriginal religions, any of the cults, this is for you. Also, if you're Orthodox or if you're Protestant, member of any of the Protestant sects or any of the cults like, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, all of them, this is for you. Or if you're Catholic, but other than that, don't buy it. I'm telling you, just don't buy it. I take you from no faith at all, all the way to the Catholic Church, and why be Catholic? Truth and consequences kind of picks up where why be Catholic leaves off. I defend the magisterium of the church, but then I most importantly show you, I show you what happens when you don't have the magisterium. Very important, hard-hitting DVD right there. 
Two CD sets I'm going to recommend, Sword of the Spirit. I deal with the six most important issues in biblical apologetics. And, and uh, Catholic Answers to Common Objections, the top 20 questions that I get as a Catholic apologist. So that's just to wet your whistle. We got tons more back there. Gentlemen, why am I presenting all that to you? Is it so that we can pay the light bill at Catholic Answers? Yes, that's part of it. Amen. <laughs> but of course, more important than that, gentlemen, as I told the folks last night, and I always say this at my conferences, what's more important than today is tomorrow morning. Amen? What's more important than coming and getting pumped up hearing some talks, and hopefully you will, is what you're going to do tomorrow in your life to change your life, and in so doing, your family, your culture, your communities, your Catholic communities, and the world, gentlemen. And I don't know, unless you've had your head under the proverbial rock, I think you realize our culture is being obliterated before our very eyes. I'm 51 years old. If you'd have told me 40 years ago we'd be now, I would not have believed you. The precipitous decline of our culture. Gentlemen, we have the answers. It's time for us to stand up and give those answers. Now, I've only got an hour with you, and I just wasted four minutes. <laughs> no, it wasn't a waste. I'm going to keep this right here so I'm on time. Now, we got started a little late, gentlemen, so I am going to go a little bit over my time. I just want that to be on record. Uh, but what I'm going to talk about is fatherhood. God is looking for a few good men. You better believe it. It's not just the Marine Corps, but God is looking for a few good men. I'm going to do two simple points here. Number one, we're going to talk about masculine and feminine spirituality. And then number two, we're going to apply what we learn to our lives as men in the context of the sacrament of holy matrimony. Just two simple points. Are you all ready to rumble? Yes. Point number one, let's talk a little bit masculine and feminine spirituality. How many of you all know we are in a confused culture where men think they're women, women think they're men, and everybody's confused. Amen. Just ask Caitlyn Jenner. Ask Renee Richards. Amen. Folks are confused, and I think one of the reasons has to be laid on the doorstep of we Catholic men. Because we understand what it means to be a man, what it means to be a father, but unfortunately outside these doors there is such confusion. And let's face it, when you have mama raising Catholic children instead of dad, amen, too often, dad's drinking beer, watching the Cowboys lose, amen, oh I'm sorry, play. <laughs> Did I let that slip out? Oh my goodness. You know what I'm saying. Instead of taking headship and leading in the image of Jesus Christ, unfortunately the young children and especially the boys are confused because they see mama doing what daddy's supposed to do and the young boys say, boy, I want to be a real man. Just like mom. What? Are you all with me? Let's talk a little masculine, feminine spirituality. I'm going to do it in a different kind of way because we apologists are different kind of people anyway. But I'm going to throw out three verses of scripture that are some of our feminist friends' favorites. Let's just say they don't like these verses. I'm going to throw them out here for you. 1 Timothy 2.12. St. Paul says, I allow not the woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man. Everybody in here say, Amen. Amen. All right. <laughs> You're supposed to say, Amen. 
right, all right. <laughs> I allow not the woman to teach nor usurp authority over the man. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And don't you love the second part? And it was not the man that was in the transgression. It was the woman. Amen. <laughs> don't you love it? It was that woman's fault. Adam was not. It was the woman that was in the transgression, right? A favorite text of feminists. In fact, unfortunately, years ago, in this, and I actually found a Catholic commentary, God help us, that actually said here, well, Paul was infected by a misogynist culture, you see. So his misogynism kind of comes through. Folks, St. Paul was not a misogynist, amen? In fact, St. Paul makes it very clear in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. He says, we are baptized by one spirit into Jesus Christ, amen? Where there is no longer male nor female, bond nor free, Jew nor Greek, for all are one in Christ. Jesus Christ, St. Paul, are the ultimate liberator women. Amen. What is Paul saying? There is an essential equality between man and woman. That is without doubt, infallible, declared by God and declared by St. Paul. In fact, if people want to call him a misogynist, he's also guilty of misandry. Amen. Mis misogyny means hatred of women. Misandry would be hatred of men. He would be guilty of that. Why? Because in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, what did St. Paul say? By one man, sin and death entered into the world, and death came upon all. Oh, Paul, you must hate men, right? How come they never say that? They say he hates women, but they don't, they don't say he hates men here. Are y'all with me? The answer is because he doesn't hate anybody. He is teaching in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, the truth that ultimate responsibility for original sin fell not on Eve, but Adam. In 1 Timothy, he's showing that Eve had a role to play, amen, as intercessor. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But he had ultimate responsibility for that fall. And he also typifies Jesus Christ. And of course, Eve typifies Mary. Oh, I wish we had time to do that. We don't. That's another talk. But anyway, is Paul misogynist? No. What Paul is doing in 1 Timothy 2 is he is teaching, you know, as the French say, viva la différence, amen? I don't know about y'all, I'm so glad for the difference. Can anybody say amen? amen. You know why? Because I'm looking at a bunch of ugly men right now. <laughs> and I say, thanks be to God for the woman, Amen. Oh, Lord have mercy. Anyway, I'll get off of that point. Paul is saying there is a differentiation of roles. Praise be to God. And this is where we're so confused in our culture today. And remember, St. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is talking in the context of a pastoral letter. In fact, in four verses, just in four verses after 1 Timothy 2.12, he will teach on or begin to teach on the roles uh, or the offices of deacon and bishop. Amen? See, this pastoral letter. So he is talking about ministerial priesthood and how that this is reserved to men alone. But notice his argumentation. He uses the order of creation which reflects 
the order of redemption. Amen. How many of y'all know grace always builds on nature, never destroys? It perfects nature, but never destroys nature. Amen? Because God made nature good. We've been wounded, hence we need perfection. But nature is good. Grace builds on nature. Nature is a reflection. The order of cre creation reflects the order of redemption. He begins with creation and moves to redemption. Adam has headship in the family. Thus, the man has headship in the order of redemption as well. Now, let's go to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 3 through 7, and we'll put a bow on this first point so we can get to the good stuff. I'm really looking forward to what I'm about to say right now. <laughs> this is good. Last night I was telling the folks, I wish I could be sitting where they were so I could hear what I was saying. Because this is good. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. I'm going to give you two more verses that the feminists hate. But by golly, they're just misdirected. When you can sit them down and help to, to explain what's going on here. A lot of times you can open eyes. But St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven three, The head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Very important principle. Once again, I should point out, 1 Corinthians 11 is set in the context of the public liturgy. He, he is in context, there's no doubt. He's just talked about the Eucharist in 1 Corinthians 10, 15 through 17. He's about to talk about the Mass in the strongest terms in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, leading into talking about the gifts of the Spirit, love the greatest, of course, in chapters 12 and 13. And then when you go into 14, when he talks about uh, the charisms, it's specifically in the context of the public liturgy that he's talking about. And then in chapter 15, he teaches on the resurrection, which is what we do on Sunday. Amen? The feast of the resurrection leading into 1 Corinthians 16, where he says, on the first day of the week when you gather to take up the collections. By the way, you know that's church. Amen? That's when you take up the collections. For my Seventh-day Adventist friends, I like to point that out. That's church on Sunday morning. Amen? Anyway, the point is, that's the context in which he talks about the headship of the man. Once again, there is an order to creation. He's focusing here on the order of redemption that God has established. Men as head. Now, let's go to verse 7 and the third verse that our feminist friend. This is, this is probably the one that makes them scream the loudest. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7. He says... For the man is the image and glory of God. Everybody say, Amen. Amen. <laughs> the man is the image and glory of God. The woman is the glory of man. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the man is the image and glory of God, and the woman is just the glory of man. Is that a put down to women? Of course not. Once again, folks, we must emphasize, Paul's not talking about the essential equality of man and woman. He's already made that clear in Galatians 3.27. Amen? In fact, he's just bringing out in full what we see in seed form in the Old Testament. In Genesis 1.26, male and female he created them in the image and likeness of God. Now, that got a little muddied in the Old Testament. Definitely got a little obscure in the Old Testament. Jesus reveals it in full 
as do the apostles. But here, what does he mean, and this is where we're going to get to the crux of the issue, gentlemen. What does he mean by the man is the image of the glory of God, the woman is the glory of man? Well, first of all, let's talk a little feminine spirituality before I can slap you, men, I mean, before I can share with you, brothers in Christ, uh, about uh, masculine spirituality. When he says the woman is the glory of man, what does that mean? What it means is the woman is a better, fuller reflection of the creation. What it means to be man as in mankind. Did y'all know that we need, as men, we need to learn from women what it is to be man. Now, what do I mean by that? Think about this, gentlemen, to be man. The woman is the glory of man. Why? She is the perfection, the pinnacle of God's creation. As my good friend, Dr. Alice von Hildebrand, often says, right? Adam was, was created from what? The slime of the earth. In, in Hebrew, it's the slime. That's what we were made from, brother. Everybody say, amen. Amen. <laughs> we're created from the slime. The woman is made from the man. Which is more perfect, the slime or the man? See, you get the sense that the woman is the pinnacle of God's creation. She is the glory of creation. As such, she reveals in a powerful way what it means to be man, as in mankind. And I want you to think about this because it's going to be very important when we get to the sacrament of holy matrimony. The woman better reflects the creation's need for the creator. Why? Because she is built to receive. Amen? She is made. Look at her body. Amen, gentlemen? And let's keep this G-rated. Look at her body. She receives. Look at the conjugal act. She receives the seed and brings forth life. That's how she's made. You and I are made different. We're made as the transcendent one, right? The first cause of life in the family. We go out from ourselves. That's one of the reasons why we better image God. I'll get to that in a second. What's your name? Jeff, Jeff hang in there. I'll get to that in a second, all right? <laughs> but she receives. See, now, we see that in the order of creation, but what did we say about the order of creation? It reflects what? The order of redemption. How many of you know that if you want to get to heaven, how many of you know when you were baptized? How many of you were baptized? Raise your hand. All right. When you were baptized, you got in over your head. Amen? Yes, you did. Why? Because you were called. You were given supernatural life, but you're called to a supernatural end to which you can't get by your own strength. Amen? If you're going to get to heaven, gentlemen, you're going to need to receive the grace of God, the seed, if you will. First Peter chapter 1, St. Peter, verse 23, talks about the word of God as a seed. Luke chapter 13, the sower went out to sow the seed of the word of God. Amen. We must receive, and it's not as easy for us as it is for women. Amen. See, we are the ones that like to, you know, with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. That's us. Folks, do you all know this is why men don't ask for directions? <laughs> it's true that's not just a cliche it is true man we don't like to ask for direction the wife's going would you just ask so I know where it is and then we're lost <laughs> in fact I always say if you go back to the tower of Babel in the book of Genesis they were all men 
trying to build that. <laughs> we're going to build a tower to, to heaven. And you know what? All the women were sitting around going, uh, honey, you can't do Shut up, woman. We're going to build a tower to heaven. And you can't do it. But that's what we try to do. Women understand. They're the more pious of, of the species because they understand what it means to receive. You and I, it's hard. That's why we need the feminine in our lives. I always say, oh my goodness, I, I, I'm gonna throw in an extra added bonus if there's any priests here. This is why priests need a relationship with the Blessed Virgin Mary. We all do, but priests in a specifically important way because without the emphasis of the feminine in our lives, you know what we become? You know what we become, Jeffrey? No, you're not Jeffrey. Are you Jeffrey? I thought you were wearing somebody else. Jeffrey, you know what we become without the emphasis of the feminine? You and I are running around throwing spears at each other. That's what we would be doing, all right? Because the woman is the foundation of civilization. She is the one that brings sanity and peace to the household. She helps us to understand with her wisdom what is most important. Amen? Is to shut your mouth and receive. Right? But now, folks, I want to emphasize this. The feminine spirituality is crucial in Catholicism and in biblical Christianity because of the fact that the church is revealed to be a bride. Amen? We're not the bridegroom. We are the bride. So the, the importance of the feminine spirituality cannot be overemphasized. The church is first Marian, says a wonderful document uh, called Inter Insignores, which was written in 1976. It's a document, it, the English title is On the Admission of Women to the Ministerial Priesthood. It gives six reasons why women cannot be ordained. We don't have time to touch on that right now. But... Um, if you go to my website at timstaples.com, I got a CD set there called Call No Woman Father. Tell me that's not a good title. <laughs> and I go through all of those six reasons and more why women cannot be ordained. But the very end of that document, the church tells us the church is first Marian before she is Petrine. It's a powerful statement. Why? Because until Mary says, let it be, there ain't no Peter. Amen? In fact, there ain't no Jesus. <laughs> there ain't no church. So the first principle of life in that sense in the body of Christ is the let it be. Because until we do that, we ain't going anywhere. All right? But now, let, let's get off the feminine and let's talk about what we're here for, gentlemen. Let's focus on masculine spirituality. Because while I argue the woman is the basis, the foundation of civilization, a culture, let's back up, a family, a culture, a church, a nation is only as strong as its men. Because let's get back to 1 Corinthians 13, 7. What is, uh, not 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7. What does St. Paul mean by... The man is the image and glory of God. Here's going to be our focus, gentlemen. Get ready. We're about to have more fun than ought to be allowed. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7. The man is the image and glory of God. Why? 
The Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 239 and 240. The Catechism tells us when God is revealed as Father, there are two essential truths that are revealed to us. Number one is that God is the first origin. I'll use the Thomistic first cause. Same difference. Same difference as we used to say. The first cause of all things and transcendent authority. And secondly, he is the love, the tender love of a parent. Those are two essential truths that are revealed in the revelation that God is Father. Amen? Now let's focus on that first one. For last, we got to be laser specific here. We're going to focus on the first aspect. That Father means he is the first cause and transcendent authority. What does that mean? God as first cause, we all know. We can know this, by the way. We don't need a Bible to tell us. We don't need the Catholic faith to tell us. We can know through reason the existence of God. We can know God is the uncaused cause. Amen? As St. Thomas Aquinas says, everything in the universe is caused. Everything. Whatever the thing is, whether it's angels or men, material, visible or invisible, everything that exists was caused. There of necessity, therefore, must be, because you cannot have infinite caused causes. Because if you try to have infinite caused causes, that makes no sense. It's kind of like a square circle, because you ain't got nothing to be the ultimate cause that has the power of causation in itself. It'd be like coming up to a train and you just got a bunch of cars going by and you didn't see the, the engine. And you say, wow, there must just be infinite cars here. There's no train pulling this thing. There's just, is that stupid? Yeah, that's stupid. Why? Because there has to be something pulling the train. Amen. Can't be infinite car, cars just dependent upon another car because it doesn't have the, the power to cause itself to move. There has to be the uncaused cause that itself was not caused, but is the cause of all. That is God. He is infinite. No beginning, no end. All perfection. We say pure act, as Thomas will prove in his first proof for the existence of God. Are you all with me here? So God, we know, is the uncaused cause. As such, we do say God is pure actuality. There's no potency in God. Amen? Trent's going to talk about a whole lot more stuff like that in his talk. But he is pure act. No potency. No potential. From that, we can know things like, how many of you all know there's a lot of things God can't do? God can't walk from here to there. Did you all know that? God can't do that. You know why? Because he's already there. Amen? <laughs> Amen. Amen. God can't come to know something. Why? Because he already knows it. Amen. He's already, he is, in fact, some people, I, I had a, a student years ago who said to me, well, how do you know, okay, so he was the uncaused cause, but how do you know he didn't die? <laughs> Long time ago, he died. Yeah, he was infinite in the past, but he died. So, uh, you know, whenever you talk about death, what do we say? We say the cause of death was, amen. You just eliminated God as a possible candidate for death because he's uncaused amen if there's a cause of death he ain't the uncaused cause are y'all with me he can't die he is infinite but hear me hear me as such God as pure act we have to ask a very important question why in the world would God have created 
Think about this. As the uncaused cause, as pure act, he has everything. My friends, infinite happiness, infinite power. He is absolutely, we, we can't even fathom what God is. Amen. We know more about what he's not than what he is because we can't even understand infinity. Infinite goodness. He is absolutely complete. Think about it. Why would he create these little squirmy creatures called humans? <laughs> Why? Why would he create at all knowing, think about this, my friends, knowing that when he creates, the creation can add absolutely nothing to him. In fact, not only can the creation not add anything to him, but God knows when he creates that that creation will one day kill him. Amen? But he creates anyway. Why? Folks, y'all understand there is nothing we can give to God. You talk about trying to buy a gift for somebody that's got everything. <laughs> Amen? That's God. I mean, even our cooperation with God's grace, our prayers to him. We can do nothing unless he first gives us the grace. As St. Augustine says, even with our final salvation, ultimately what God does is he crowns his own gifts. Amen? See, God has everything. And yet he creates. Why? There is one answer, brothers. And this is central to everything we're going to talk about now. The answer is love. Because God is Love. First John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love. Now, of course, there's no other religion in the world that says that other than Christianity. Amen? Because there was no way. It, it, Islam certainly never says God is love. That's a whole other talk. But Judaism, God is not love. He loves, but he is not love. He, he's merciful. He's a lot of things. Right? And the reason is, because in order to be loved, there has to be a beloved. Amen? It's only with the revelation of the Trinity that we see that the Father loves the Son infinitely. The Son infinitely loves the Father. The Father and the Son infinitely love the Holy Spirit. And that God is for all eternity. The persons of the Blessed Trinity pouring themselves out into each other in an infinitely perfect singular act of love. And what is love, gentlemen? Here is the crux of the issue, gentlemen. Get ready. This is going to be too good. I'm telling you right now, this is too good. You don't even deserve this. <laughs> All right. What is love? St. Thomas Aquinas tells us to love is to will the good of the other. To will the good of the other. St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, he gives us a litany in his definition of love, but I want to focus on one thing he says there. I think it's right around verse 4, as I recall. He says, love considers not its own interests. Amen. How many of y'all know the song? Because the greatest love of all is easy to receive. <coughs> I mean, God bless the late Whitney Houston, but that song disgusts me. You know why? Because the greatest love is not the love of yourself. That's called narcissism. Amen? My friends, love is not... Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. No, it's not! Because love 
is to pour yourself out into the other without asking anything in return. My friends, that's what love is, and that's what is exemplified in God. Now, we can't get the full revelation of God as love until we get to the Trinity, but we've got a hint in the creation, in the act of creation. Why? Because, God, there's two things we can know through natural reason. Number one, God was free. Because if he created, let's, let's throw the scientists a bone, let's say 13.7 billion years ago. I don't even know how they know that, but I'll give it. I'll, all right. Why wasn't it 12 billion years ago? Why wasn't it last week? Amen. God could do it anytime he wants. In other words, the implication is God was free, number one. Number two, it requires an infinite act in order to create something from nothing. An infinitely powerful act. And it requires whoever did the creating, create something that could give him nothing. Amen? He loves. He pours himself out. And gentlemen, this is what determines whether you're a man or not. I don't mean biologically, because you got the right thing between your legs. I'm talking about being a man in the image of Jesus Christ. It is he who loves. All right. That's part one. Let's get to part two. Because now what I want to do is let's take what we've learned about what it means to be really father. That's what we're focusing on. Because fatherhood means God is that first cause, transcendent authority. The one who pours himself out. Amen? Without accepting or expecting anything in return, as the good bishop said during his homily. Amen? He loves simply because he is love, not expecting anything in return. Now let's get to the sacrament of holy matrimony. And I'm going to tell you a little story. When I was in the seminary years ago, I had a moral theology professor by the name of Sister Paula Jean. All right, I'm actually right on time. Sister Paul Jean was a little Franciscan nun who taught us moral theology when I was in the seminary. She changed my life. And in fact, she changed my marriage, even though I wasn't married at the time. <laughs> in fact, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting to be married at the time. I was studying for the priesthood. But she changed my future marriage. And this is how. She taught us in sacraments. I'm very Thomistic, always have been. It's the way I came into the church. But she was very, a lot of Bonaventure. We read a lot of Bonaventure. We read a lot of Augustine. I wasn't as familiar with. But when she taught us sacraments, of course, there's a couple of things, of course, that's universally true. When you think about sacraments, what do you think about? The sacraments represent the means whereby God communicates the life of Christ into our lives in order for us to get to heaven. Amen? The sacraments are all about Jesus. And Jesus, if you want to know what Jesus was all about, look to the Father. Amen. Didn't Jesus say in, in John chapter 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In fact, in Colossians 1.15, the scripture says, Christ is the image of God. You know what the Greek word for image is? Icon. It's where the word icon comes from. He is the icon of the Father. Amen. Christ exemplifies 
God the Father in every aspect of his life, ultimately to the pouring of himself out on the cross. But he simply loves. We're going to get back to that in a moment. But gentlemen, Sister Paula Jean said, all of the sacraments, of course, are all about Christ. But then she said this, all of the sacraments represent our experiencing being drawn into the life, death, burial, and resurrected life of Christ. All of them. And in a particular way, they are our participation in the death of the Lord. See, this is a very important, gentlemen, that we were... I know in today's Catholic culture, you know, we talk about the celebration of the Mass. Welcome to the celebration. And that's true. There is a celebratory aspect. Resurrection. Amen? But I think what we forget a lot in our modern Catholic culture is a, a point Bishop Sheen made many years ago. I'll never forget it. He was actually commenting on Matthew 16, the promise of the keys to Peter. And remember, right after the promise of the keys, Peter, or Jesus says to Peter, the Son of Man must go to the cross, suffer, die. And what did Peter say? Ha, ha, ha! No, ha, ha! No, Jesus, you didn't get the memo, pal. We're going to take over the empire, brother. You're going to be the new emperor. We're going to kick some tail. Amen? We're going to rise up and we're going to have... And what did Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things which be of God, but the things which are of men. See, that's our tendency, isn't it, gentlemen? By golly, we're going to kick these people's... <laughs> but see, that's not the way to victory in our Catholic faith. We don't like that part, man. Tertullian said the seed of the church is what? The blood of the martyrs. We don't like that. We want it to be the Republican Party, maybe. We're going to get all the right Supreme Court justices. We're going to get the right president. Then we're going to take this country. Go no, you're not. You're going to suffer and die. That's what you're going to do. Amen? I hate to be the bearer of bad news, my friends, but victory has never come that way. We are called to death. We are called to die. We are accounted, as St. Paul says, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. We are killed all the day long. But nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. Amen? Oh, that one doesn't get you any headlines, though, Tim. You know, this dying stuff. Let me tell you something. Our brothers right now in, in Syria and Iraq know what it means to be Christian. Gentlemen, we got to change our thinking. Because I'm going to tell you something, when we get our thinking right, then you might see a You might see a Roman Empire go from pagan to Christian. Amen? But it's going to happen through the blood of martyrs. I'm just telling you, my friends, there are dark clouds on the horizon. But you know what? We, we Catholics, we're just crazy. Because, see, we look at that. The greatest evil in the world. In, we're talk, folks, it doesn't get any worse than killing God. And yet we look at that and say, thank you, Jesus, because God brings the greatest good out of that. Amen? Our redemption. Oh, my goodness. Bishop Sheen said, any theology or spirituality that attempts to bypass the crucifixion to get to the resurrection is a sign of the demonic. Wow. Amen? 
Sister Paula Gina brought it home, man. She said, the sacraments are principally, and remember this, the Mass. I love it when they say, welcome to the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Because the Mass is principally a, a sacrifice. As long as we are walking in this valley of the shadow of death, as the psalmist says, it is principally a sacrifice. Because you can't experience the resurrection without the crucifixion. Amen? And we miss that today. That's why I see people are bored at Mass. Young people are bored. You want to know something? When, when, when they were at the foot of the cross, Mary and those women and John hanging on to Mary's skirt, if there was anything they were, it was not bored. Amen? Because when you know what the holy sacrifice is, bored is not in your vocabulary. All right. Sister Paula Jean said, all the sacraments then are principally our participation in the death of the Lord so that we might experience the resurrected life of the Lord. And you know what? I remember going through this class and I was getting excited. I'm, I'm like, man, this is awesome. This is good. And we're talking, you know, and you can, you can see like baptism. I mean, it's easy to see how baptism is a participation in the death of the Lord so that we can experience the resurrected life. I mean, Romans 6, 3 says we are buried together with him through baptism. So that as Christ is raised in newness of life, we may uh, walk in newness of life. I mean, obvious, yeah, yeah, death and resurrection, I get that. Confirmation, obviously, right? What does uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 say? You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, right? Dunamis in Greek, where we get the word dynamite. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Why? So that you may be my what? Witnesses. So we're all called to be Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Oh, no, I'm sorry. That, I'm confused. <laughs> and y'all know, what's the Greek word for witness? Martyros. Here it's martyroi. We are, confirmation, my friends, empowers us to die. That's the ultimate witness, right? Is martyrdom. We can see that with, we could go through all the sacraments, but I got to confess to you, when I was in class, I, maybe I was a little bit naive about marriage, but I remember even thinking, how in the world is marriage a participation in the death of the Lord, man? I mean, marriage, come on, that's the most glorious thing. See, how many of you have been married more than a week? Raise your hand. All right, you know what it means, Amen. <laughs> <laughs> my point is, all right, I was, maybe I was a little naive, but Sister Paula Jean pointed this out. And this, this is what revolutionized my thinking. And gentlemen, I'm going to suggest to you it can revolutionize your thinking and change your marriage, your children, the world. Here it is. She said, in marriage, we have to understand the ultimate marriage in which really our marriages are a participation is the marriage of Christ, the bridegroom, to his church. And isn't that, I mean, oh, of course that's true, right? Ephesians 5, verses 19 through 32, St. Paul tells us that marriage on this earth is a visible sign. It's a sacramental manifestation of what? The love of Christ for his church. Amen? So, she threw out something that I'd never heard before, that there are among the fathers, now this is not infallible Catholic teaching, you'll find this peppered among the fathers, I'm going to reference St. Augustine here, as she did, who taught that, and it's certainly 
uh, an acceptable the, uh, Catholic opinion to hold that Christ's marriage, if you will, to the church is a sort of quasi-sacramental union. Now, of course, Christ doesn't, you know, receive grace as you and I receive sanctifying grace and such, though he needs grace, and we'll talk about that in a moment in his life. As a fully man, he needed grace. But there is a sort of quasi-sacramentality to Christ's marriage to his bride, the church. And this, man, the wheels are spinning in my head. All right, think about it. What does that mean? Well, with all the sacraments, gentlemen, there is what's called matter and form. Amen? We learned that from the time we're knee-high to a... Yes, to a whatever. Knee-high to a grasshopper, yes. Oh, I love Texans. You know, water and words, amen, for baptism. Water is the stuff, the matter, the words. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The matter is the stuff, the word. The form is the, what forms the stuff into a sacrament. Are you with me? So is there a sort of quasi-sacramental form here when it comes to Christ's nuptial relationship with his church? Now, you and I know the form of the sacrament is the couple. The form is the words that they exchange, the mutual exchange of vows, especially in the Western church, right? We say the couple confects the sacrament through the exchange of vows in the presence of an official witness of the church, ordinarily deacon, priest, or bishop. Amen? And that's necessary for validity. Why? Because as Bishop Sheen wrote the book of all books on marriage, three to get married, it's God who joins you together. But now, we know then that the exchange of vows is essential then for there to be a sacrament. And then we have the consummation, which is the bodily component. So think about it. The, the form of the sacrament is, are the words, the exchange of vows. When, on my wedding day of August 26th of 2000, that's when we became husband and wife, when we exchanged those vows. But there's a material component as well. The bodily joining on our wedding night makes that a consummated sacrament, right? Well, is there something comparable when we talk about Jesus and his nuptial relationship to the church? Are y'all following me? Here's, here's where, oh my goodness. I thought I was going to jump through the roof when I heard this one in seminary all those years ago. Said, well, St. Augustine taught famously that the bodily component of Christ's relationship with his bride occurred on the cross. That's when he gave himself bodily to his bride. Well, when was the spiritual, you know, in, in a sense we can say, let's put it this way, with sacraments, there's a spiritual and a material component. How's that? All right, the form, the spiritual, the matter, the material. So the bodily component was Christ on the cross, right? And I'm going, oh my gosh, that's awesome. But when was the spiritual component? Sister Paula Gina pointed out. And you can think about it, you know. And, and by the way, there are different ways you can look at sacramental theology. I mean, St. Irenaeus would probably say it's in the incarnation, right? But Sister Paula Jean points out it's the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh my gosh, y'all get ready. 
If you forget everything else I said, don't forget from here on out because we're about to get to the nitty-gritty in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, y'all remember the story. Jesus says the first Mass. He then walks around that table, that altar, walks out into the Garden of Gethsemane. Amen? He collapses in a heap. And according to Mark chapter 14, verse 36, he collapses in a heap in St. Luke's version... Jesus prayed so intensely in the Garden of Gethsemane, as many of you know, he, his sweat was, as it were, drops of blood. My friends, Jesus prayed so intensely, we believe, he was popping capillaries. I'm going to ask a question here. How many of y'all were crazy like I was years ago? I used to work out like a madman in my Marine Corps years, in my football years before, and I'm paying for it now. Surgery on this shoulder, I'm going to have to have another one. Bad knees, bad back, yep. How many of y'all were like me, worked out like animals? Remember working out twice a day, doing stupid stuff, benching over 400 pounds and all that stupid Anybody like me out there? How many of you remember Tom Platts? Come on, somebody. Ah, there's always one. Who else remembers Tom Platts? All right, we got a few. Tom Platts was a famous bodybuilder years ago who had insane thighs. His thighs were like 40 plus inches. All right? That's one of them. <laughs> it is said Tom Platts would strap a thousand pounds on his back and do deep squats, brother. Deep squats. Are you ready to do that? <laughs> Amen. Deep squats. And they say that he was so intense, he would scream ah! when he was doing them. And when he was done with his workout, he would have blood in his eyes. Now, I'm not recommending that. <laughs> Folks, that gives us a sense of the passion of our Lord. He was so intense, like Tom Platts was popping capillaries in his eyes. Jesus was popping capillaries. His prayer was so intense. And why is that? Well, Jesus says, folks, you want to learn what it is to be a man, to be a father, to be a husband, ultimately to be a Christian. We're going to learn it right now. Because Jesus prayed. In Mark 14, 36, he said, Father, this is what was causing the popping of capillaries. He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he prayed that over and over and over for hours. You want to know something, my friends? There's two levels we're going to look at here. This is, the, this is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a father. This is what it means in your marriage to be head. Head in the image of Jesus Christ. On the natural level, now as many of you know, the, my Thomas friends out here, the bait, in fact, the foundation of our moral theology, right? Every human action is motiv motivated by five natural inclinations, right? The inclination to know truth, to will the good, to live in community, to procreate, and the gift of self-preservation, to preserve the self. That's the foundation of every human action in some aspect. That's the foundation. Jesus was fully man. He had the same natural inclinations that we do. Let's focus on self-preservation. That great gift 
is what caused Jesus on Good Friday morning not to wake up and say, boy, I just can't wait. Bring on the nails. Can you nail them now? Can you? Can you? No. In fact, if Jesus would have said that, we'd have problems with Jesus. He would need some psychological help. Are you all with me? See, the gift of self-preservation is the gift that says, fire that way. I'm going to go this way. Amen? See, Jesus, even on a natural level, had to overcome what even a perfect human nature could not do without grace. Did you all know Jesus needed grace? Yes, he did. Needed grace. You say, Tim, that sounds heretical to me. How did he need grace? Well, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, and you, you think about this. Ephesians chapter, uh, not Ephesians, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Listen to this. It says, Christ, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience through the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of salvation to all those who would obey him. Did you catch that? He was perfected through suffering. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 says it became him of whom were all things, through whom were all things, for whom were all things, to perfect the author of our salvation through suffering. Thus he is not ashamed to call us brethren. He suffered to be perfected, but wait a minute. St. Thomas Aquinas said, how can he be perfected? He was already perfect. Are you with me? St. Thomas says he was not perfected in the sense of movement from imperfection to perfection, but he was perfected in as much as he had to transcend what even a perfect human nature could do by grace to empower him to overcome, even on a natural level, my friends, what the human nature doesn't want to do. This is why he prayed those words, Father, if it be possible, let it pass. He didn't say that for the fun of it, my friends. He said it because it was from the depth of his being. Even though we know his will was never for an instant contrary to the Father's will, never. He expressed his full humanity in saying, Father, if it be possible, but then nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And in that instant, my friends, when he said, not my will, but thy will, grace exploded into his human nature and empowered him to do what human nature could not do without grace. And that is to go to the cross. And in so doing, overcoming, St. Thomas says, it is out of his fullness. And St. Thomas quotes John chapter 1, verse 16 here brilliantly. St. Thomas says, it is out of his fullness that we receive grace upon grace. Out of his fullness, pleroma in Greek, which means overflowing as he denies himself, grace floods into his human nature and into all of ours. Amen? Oh my goodness. And he is empowered to go to the cross and fulfill his calling. Now I'm going to bring this home here because I've only got a few minutes left. Oh my goodness. Get ready. You know what? If I was Pentecostal, I'd be shouting hallelujah right now. Amen. Oh. Folks, how does this relate? To the sacrament of holy matrimony. What, guys? Gosh, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't add one little thing. Because Jesus didn't only have to overcome his natural, or transcend, if you will, his natural inclinations as holy man. 
But could we add a little something here? How about the fact that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he saw, did you know he saw, he knew and loved you? I'm going to dispel a popular myth. How many of y'all have ever heard of the myth that says Jesus died for humanity? You ever heard that? Jesus died for humanity. No, he didn't. He died for you. Amen? In fact, the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 478, go home and read it. Paragraph 478, that's 478, 478, 478. I'll bet you you'll remember 478. The Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us that Christ in his passion knew and loved each one of us with a human heart. Not just in his divine person, divine nature, with a human heart. How could he do that? Because he had perfect vision. From the moment of his conception, he saw all of us in the beatific vision. He saw, he knew, he loved. And in fact, he experienced all of the pain and the suffering and the agony of a hundred million abortions, of all the rapes and murders. Did you know? I got to throw out one more verse here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, remember that the scripture says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him what in the world is that remember on the cross Jesus said my God my God why hast thou what forsaken me what in the world's going on here those two verses are very much connected in our tradition number one let's say what it's not in paragraph 602 and 603 in the catechism catholic church it makes very clear that John Calvin was wrong when Calvin taught, and you've probably heard, how many of y'all have ever heard this? The father turned his back on the son. That is, that is not Catholic teaching. John Calvin taught that Christ became reprobate. He took literally that Christ became sin to mean he became repugnant to the father. Father has to, folks, that's absurd. That's impo- it's metaphysically impossible because Jesus is God. Amen. God can't get mad at himself. Are y'all with me? He just can't. All right. But what is it saying? He became sin. What is he saying? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The catechism tells us it was not that he became reprobate. It was he became so closely identified with us that he could say in our place, my God, my God. He experienced the, the pain and agony of 100 million abortions, all the rapes, all of the sin to a degree, my friends, that his human nature, apart from grace and apart from the help of the angels, as some say, would have died. That's what he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you see why there was blood popping out? Capillaries popping, Right? He had to overcome that as well. I love in Mel Gibson's movie how he depicts that when Satan looks at Christ and he says, can one man take upon himself the sins of all, right? Oh, that was glorious, that movie, right? That was so profound. Well, folks, Jesus did all of that out of love for his bride. Think about it. Jesus, when he's being beaten and spit upon and ultimately being crucified, it was you and I that did it to him, and yet that was who he was dying for. The one that was beating him and spitting on him. Us! I can't help whenever I think about this. And I think about Catholic men today. We have become such wimps 
that at times it, it turns your stomach, doesn't it? Oh, my wife just doesn't understand me. She doesn't understand me. And we lay them down on a couch and tell me your problems. Oh, she's so mean. <laughs> Has she put a crown of thorns on your head lately? Has she nailed nails through your hands and feet lately? You know what, folks, I'm not putting down. I know folks sometimes need cycle. I'm, I'm, not saying, I'm not putting that down. But you know what I'm saying is we need to stop crying and start dying. As men, we need to get the sense in our heads and understand what it is we're called to. We are called to walk in his footsteps, to walk as men who live to die. That's what we do as men. We walk in his footsteps just as Jesus died for his bride. On our wedding days, this is the essence of what I want to leave you with, guys. What Sister Paula Jean said is when we ratify... That sacrament on our wedding days, on August 26th of 2000, basically what I said to my wife in the image of Jesus Christ was, no longer my will, but thy will be done. Because we confect the sacrament between ourselves by our mutual subjection to each other in Christ. Are you with me? Without the in Christ, it doesn't work. Are you with me? But we confect the sacrament. And Sister Paula Jean said, Oh my gosh, it's in that act of death that you experience life in your marriage. Now, I asked you earlier, how many of you are baptized, right? Raise your hand. All right, now, put your hand down. How many of you are married? Raise your hand. All right, how many of you know? Keep your hand up. Everybody that has your hand up right now. On your wedding day, you got in over your head. Amen? <laughs> Am I right? And you want to know why? Because it's just as baptism incorporates you into Christ and you receive a calling to get somewhere you can't go without grace. When you signed on the dotted line and you married that beautiful bride, you basically got in over your head because ultimately your calling is to get each other to heaven. Amen? And to drag as many kids as you can with you. And you know what? You ain't getting there without supernatural power in your life. And guess what? You ain't getting the supernatural power without dying, gentlemen. That is what the ratification is all about. Death so that we can experience life. And I will tell you on a natural level, this is very human what we're talking about here on one level. Very human. On my wedding day, I said to my wife, and I'll guarantee, I, I believe this in a literal way, honey, I will die for you. And then I said, God, please help me to do that. Amen. Why? Because I can't. That's the point. I can't. But that doesn't mean I don't say it. Amen. And I mean on a physical level. Gentlemen, maybe it's the Marine in me that says this, but I'll guarantee you this. You come to my house, you want to mess with my wife and my kids, you will come through me. And you better bring your lunch. Amen. I got a nine millimeter. I sleep every night with my hand on the trigger. I got the safety on. Don't worry. And I ain't kidding, brother. You come in my house, amen. I will welcome you with my 9 millimeter. In fact, I'm about to get a 45. I'm going to give the 9 mil to my wife. Amen. Anyway, I'm talking on a physical level, brothers. We're called to die for our wives and our children. But you know what? In a sense, we all like to say that. Man, look at that. Man, Tim, yeah, I will die for you, brother. Come in, I'll kick your head. Right? But are you willing to get up extra early and make breakfast for your wife? Amen. Are you willing? This is my final point, gentlemen. Final point. 
But Sister Paula Jean said, we as men, we have a tendency to love the grandiose. We have a tendency to want to. Hey, we all dream about it, man. Let ISIS come to my house. Amen. Uh, right? Are we willing? See, because it's in that self-abnegation in the exchange of vows that grace explodes into our lives. And give us the right, by the way, to the wedding, to the marital bed where those graces are increased and perfected and we're empowered to live the sacrament but see the ratification isn't meant to just happen one time we just just like the consummation didn't happen just one time amen gentlemen i mean i got six kids so it happened at least six times are y'all with me because every time you renew the covenant amen you renew and graces flood into your life what we've got to understand is that marriage as a sacrament we're called to live it every day and what I did, because of the blessing of Sister Paula Jean, a little Franciscan nun, is I taught my wife this as we were preparing for marriage. And she and I, for the last, we're coming up on 16 years of marriage. And what we try to do, and I'm going to share this with you all, take this home with you. What we try to do is every day find a way to die. See? Not some grandiose, but it means getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning just the other night when little... Anthony Francis just couldn't sleep. <laughs> ah! Didn't he know what I had to do the next day? <laughs> Amen. I said, honey, just lay down. Go back to sleep. I'll take Anthony. <laughs> Little 17-month-old, my youngest of six, right? And you know what I did, though? I comported myself. I held that little boy. I patted, and I said, Lord, I offer this up for my wife and for my kids. Lord, give them the grace to love you and to serve you for the rest of their days. See, it's getting up and changing the diaper at 2 a.m. As Kimberly Hahn says it so often, you know, she says we're going to change the world one diaper at a time. Amen. This is what we got to see. It's in the little acts of self-abnegation, getting up early before work and cooking them breakfast. Honey, don't worry about it. I've taken care of it. Then you go to work. And by the way, you don't put it in your wife's face and say, look what I did for you, honey. <laughs> no, you offer it up. That is what I'm talking about. Every day in your marriage, in your life, find a way to die. And I'm going to tell you a final thing. I've been telling you a lot of final things. My wife and I, and people don't believe me, if she was here, she'd say amen to this. People don't even believe us when we say this. In 15, coming up on 16 years of marriage, we've had five arguments. Five. And you know what? I'm 0 for 5. <laughs> That's a fact. That is a fact. And you know why? Oh, boy, that, I've had folks say to me, and I don't care, say what you want. I know it's true. And on Judgment Day, you'll know it's true. I lost all five of them. But see, the reason is, we don't argue. Because, see, when you're looking for ways to die, amen, you end up not arguing. Are you with me? See, when the wife wants to shred you, and probably you deserve it, she chooses not to and prays for you instead. You know what happens? Grace floods in, and then God takes care of it. Amen? It requires faith. See, you and I as men, when we want to, Oh, man, I, I just got to kick back and drink a beer and watch whatever. I'm going to be concerned for her and the kids. I'm going to read the bedtime story. I'm going to choose to offer this up to God. Bam! Grace floods in. That's how it works. So that when the big things come in your life, when you've been faithful in the small things, what does God say? You'll be faithful in the big things. So when the day comes, 
the great sacrifice has to be made, you'll be able to do it. Amen? See, folks, this is marriage. This is what it means to be a father, is to pour yourself out in the image of God our creator, in the image, the icon of Jesus Christ who reveals what it means to be father. Amen? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Your children will see God in you to the degree they see your generosity. They will see God in you to the degree they see your sweat, your blood, your tears being poured out for them. One day, if I can hear the words from my six little poop machines right now, if I can, if I can hear the words, you know what? You can say a lot about dad. He was a little weird sometimes. And man, his right hand hurt. <laughs> but dad loved us. Man, he worked himself. He worked his fingers to a bone. He loved us. Brothers, I will have done my job. Amen? God bless y'all. Amen. Praise God. Thank you. very grateful for your presence here this evening and we sincerely welcome all of you if you're new to Saints John and Paul I think the first part of business is to tell you where the restrooms may be in the back in the entryway there are a men's room and a ladies room and if you take any of the stairwells on the side here both ones will lead you downstairs there are a plethora of bathrooms downstairs. So we have more than Heinz Field, so no one should be uncomfortable. And if you do go downstairs at some point, there's also the, our Grotto Chapel. So if it's your first visit here, you may want to stop and peek into the chapel and say a little prayer before you leave. I would like to, first of all, thank the committee that allowed this Theology Nightclub to exist in our parish this year and for getting us Dr. Hahn. So Tom Murray, sister, and her team, I would just like them to stand or wave. I know some of them working in the back so that we can thank them for their hard work. And before I have the privilege of introducing Dr. Hahn to all of us, I would like to first introduce Tom Murray, who will tell you a little bit about the next few upcoming events for this academic year. Thanks, Father Mac. So as you said, my name is Tom Murray. I'm the coordinator of the two new adult faith formation programs here at the Paris this year. And I just want to do a little commercial break before we start off the event. 
and let you know that our last two events of the season include, as the slides behind me show, on April 22nd, regarding marriage and family. Father Larry DiNardo will present Pope Francis's calling, once your input for the Extraordinary Synod on the family. And on May 22nd, regarding prayer and spirituality, Father Bob McCreary, Franciscan from DC, will present Finding a Path to Real Prayer in a Hectic Life, Suggestions of a Busy Pope, and Some Very Realistic Saints. So as well, thank you very much for joining us tonight. We're interested in getting your feedback at the end of the night. There are surveys and pencils at the end of the pew, so if you would do us a favor, fill those out after the, after the talk and leave them in baskets by the, end of the, uh, by the doors. We also have baskets in the back. If you took a plastic name badge holder, please return those. We appreciate it. And finally, there's donation baskets out there. If you haven't seen them already, those help us offset the cost of these events. So with that, I'll turn it back over to Father Mac. Thank you. truly is a privilege and an honor to welcome Dr. Hahn to our parish here at St. John and Paul, and we are very grateful for your wonderful turnout. It's very challenging for any parish to invite someone to speak, and we have a great regard for them, and then no one shows. So you made me very proud tonight. We're very grateful that you took this evening to be here to hear what Dr. Hahn has to say. would have to say that Dr. Hahn, being a Protestant and a Protestant minister and very schooled, very much schooled in the Protestant theology, uh, becoming Catholic, his conversion to Catholicism uh, was a very powerful event in his life, but not only in his life and his wife's life, family, but for the church as a whole. And I would have to say, many of you would agree that he is one of the most renowned modern-day Catholic apologists, someone who understands our faith, certainly from a biblical perspective, and not only understands it for himself, but is skilled at being able to teach others. I've been privileged to be at a number of his conferences and classes and truly feel honored to be able to introduce to you tonight in this Perry's Church, a man of his quality. He tells me that he's celebrating a number of special things in his life, he, that he and his wife are celebrating 35 years of marriage, so let's congratulate them. And they are very proud of their six children and nine grandchildren, so let's congratulate him again. And if you didn't know, he graduated from Upper St. Clair High School, so he's not someone who's not familiar with our area. He's someone from, actually, the Diocese of Pittsburgh. So let us welcome <laughs> Dr. Son. Thank you, Father Mack. It is, uh, it is so good to be back in Pittsburgh, especially now that I'm Catholic. <laughs> you know, I, I've, uh, I've reached that point in my life where I was 28 years old when I entered the Catholic Church back in 86, 
And now it's been exactly 28 years coming up to this Easter where I'll be celebrating the second half of my life as a Catholic. And boy, do I still feel at home. But most especially in the Berg. <laughs> Thank you for coming out and for braving the cold. <laughs> I think you might have looked and seen the temperatures and what they're going down to. It's been like this uh, for most of the winter. but. Uh, our hearts are warm, and this church is so beautiful. Let's turn our hearts to heaven now, and let's pray together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, your eternal Son, our Savior, and our Lord. We thank you also for the Holy Spirit, and we ask in the name of Jesus for you to pour out the Holy Spirit upon us this evening to illuminate our minds with the light of truth, to enkindle our hearts with the fire of your love, to prepare us for the rest of the journey of faith that you have called us to as members of your family, as beloved sons and daughters. And especially next week as we begin once again the Lenten journey towards the Paschal mystery, towards the Easter victory, we pray that you would open up our hearts to what it is that you are calling us to. Lord Jesus Christ, through Pope Francis, you are calling us to be agents of the new evangelization. But in order to be faithful and fruitful, we really ask you now to help us and hear us as we pray that family prayer that you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Saints John and Paul, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. The topic this evening is the new evangelization. What is it? Before I just tackle it, though, I'd like to just relate to you an experience that I had years ago, almost 10 years ago, that was sort of like uh, life-defining. You see, I grew up in Pittsburgh, but as I mentioned, you know, I grew up an evangelical Protestant, or at least that's what I converted to around the age of 14 when I was finding my way out of the Allegheny County juvenile court system. <laughs> the experience of coming back to Pittsburgh as a Catholic, I went downtown to visit a friend of mine who was in Mercy Hospital. And I knew exactly how to get to Presbyterian Hospital because I grew up Presbyterian, but I didn't know where the Sisters of Mercy had tucked their institution away. So I got downtown and then I got lost. I went around the block several times before I did something that many of us men seem to have a difficult time doing, I, I, I pulled over and I asked for directions. And the fellow on the sidewalk looked at me and he started laughing. I'm like, what's so funny? I'm just looking for Mercy Hospital. He said, you're practically there. And I said, well, okay, but how do I finish the, the trip? He said, just turn down pride and you'll find mercy. <laughs> and he laughed and walked away. And I'm like, that is the last time I asked for directions. <laughs> he enjoyed that too much, you know. And then I looked straight ahead, and sure enough, the street sign read Pride Avenue. 
And so I turned down pride and I found mercy staring me in the face. And I think in so many ways that summarizes my life experience of figuring out how to read the signs and then at the same time finding myself falling upward into the mercy of God. I think that is also what the new evangelization is about. But it's also reading the signs of the times because this isn't something that just happened last year or even 10 years ago. The new evangelization is one of those things that has been in the making for quite a while. And as I'm speaking of the signs of the times, you remember, of course, what Jesus said about that in the Gospels. But I'm also reminded of another episode. You know, Father Mack mentioned that we have six kids. Well, we have five boys and one girl, or as I put it, one rose and five thorns. Our first two thorns, Michael and Gabriel, were in a squabble one day. And it was really wrong because it was Gabriel's fifth birthday. But it was also our 10th anniversary because he had been born on our fifth anniversary. And so when I came downstairs and I heard these two sons of mine just yelling at each other, I I had to break it up until suddenly my oldest son said, Dad, you got to stop him. I'm like, from what? He said, he's going around the neighborhood and telling everybody that he was born on the same day that you and mom got married. (laughs) And he was so innocent, he was like, wasn't I? And I'm like, you were born on the same date, but not the same day. Well, that didn't mean anything to him. But as you get older, you realize it's important to distinguish between days and dates. Well, the signs of the times are pointing us to our task, our mission, our calling, and that is the new evangelization. But if we want to get perspective, you've got to step back and look at the last half a century or so, because as you remember, last year wound up the year of faith which started on the 50th anniversary of the beginning of Vatican II. That goes all the way back to 1962 before some of you were even born. Back in 1962, Vatican II convened and it didn't end until 65. And it's interesting because a lot of people say a lot of things about Vatican II as though it represents some kind of rupture from everything that happened for the first 19 centuries. But I remember as a doctoral student taking doctoral seminars down at Duquesne when I was still a Presbyterian minister. And as I worked through the documents of Vatican II, it was the Catholic faith, pure and simple, the same as I found when we were studying the documents of Vatican I. But with one significant difference, when you compare the documents of Vatican I that go back to 1870, the term evangelize in Latin evangelium only occurs once And it's only used with reference to the Gospels, that is the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But when we tackle the 16 documents of Vatican II, what I discovered, what you will find, is a whole lot more references than just one to evangelizing. In fact, the Latin root evangelize, evangelium, where we get the word evangelization, it occurs over 200 times, 206 to be exact, which is more occurrences in the Second Vatican Council than in the previous 20 councils of the church for 20 centuries combined. Clearly, the Holy Spirit stirred the hearts of all of these council fathers, these bishops, to recognize the signs of the times, that this was something that was highly significant. And you might recall that in the middle of Vatican II, shortly after it started, Pope John XXIII, that smiling pope who called this amazing event, suddenly died. And then he was replaced by Cardinal Montini, who took the name Pope Paul VI. 
And when they asked him why he chose the name Paul, because there hadn't been a pope named Paul for centuries, he made it clear that it was his intention to pattern his ministry as pope after Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles. And he wasted no time explaining that because even before Vatican II was over in 65, he already became the first pope in history to begin making apostolic journeys to other continents. In fact, in 1964, a year before Vatican II was over, he went to the Holy Land on pilgrimage and then on to India. In 65, before it was the, the Second Vatican Council was concluded, he came to the United States and spoke in New York City. In 66 and 67, he went to Portugal and Turkey. In 68, to Colombia. In 69, to Uganda. And then 1970 proved to be the banner where he traveled and went preaching to Iran, East Pakistan, the Philippines, West Samoa, Australia, Indonesia, Hong Kong, and Sri Lanka. And by the time that trip was done, he was feeling his age. And he didn't make any more apostolic journeys. But he proceeded to focus his attention on the task of evangelizing, on sharing the gospel with the whole world, those who've never heard as well as those who need to hear it again. And so in 1975, just a couple of years before he was called home, he published what, was, what proved to be the most influential document of his whole ministry. In Latin, it was entitled Evangelii Nunciandi. The English title is On Evangelization in the Modern World. And in the very beginning of this important document, he made his thesis very clear, and I quote, evangelization is in fact the grace and vocation most proper to the church, her deepest identity. She exists in order to evangelize, to be the channel of the gift of God's grace, to reconcile sinners with God the Father, and to perpetuate the sacrifice of Christ in the Mass, the Paschal Mystery, which is the memorial of his death and glorious resurrection, close quote. Notice how the Pope defined the church's identity and mission with evangelization, and at the same time showed how inseparably connected evangelizing is to the celebration of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. It's almost like in the Mass we inhale and we receive the breath of God's Spirit, and then when we go forth, itia, Ita Missa Est is the conclusion of the Mass. The Mass is ended is the translation we often hear, but it's actually a commissioning. Ita Missa Est, we're being sent out on a mission. And so we exhale, we breathe forth the breath of God's Spirit along with the Word of God that we have received, that we have consumed in the Holy Eucharist. I want to come back to this point in just a couple of minutes, but I also want to point out that when Pope Paul VI died in 1978, all of these records that he had made by traveling all around the world were almost immediately overshadowed, if not forgotten, because of this globe-trotting pope that we now know as Blessed John Paul, and in a couple of months, he will be Saint John Paul. Because what John Paul went on to do was so unique. He made over a hundred apostolic journeys, clocking in well over a million miles, and besides that, canonizing more saints than all of his predecessors put together. And most of us have lived in the shadow of this amazing man. But he was the first to actually employ the phrase new evangelization. But it was clear that he was picking up right where Paul VI left off with this great emphasis upon the task of sharing the gospel. 
It's interesting because though John Paul became Pope in 78, he didn't use the phrase right away. He used it the next year when he went back to his own homeland of Poland. He was there for about a week and a half after the communist authorities had thwarted his efforts to come earlier that year until finally they just kind of broke down and allowed him to come for just nine days. What historians now call the nine days that changed the world. When he got back to his homeland, he could sense that even though, you know, one of their own was now Pope, the, the Polish people were still somewhat discouraged. And the Polish Catholics were still somewhat dispirited. And so he used those nine days to stir up the embers, to fan the flames of the faith of a people who had been under the Nazis with Hitler, and then the communists with Stalin up until that present time. And so it was there on June 9th in 1979, when he went back to Krakow, where he had been the archbishop, and then he traveled to Novohuda, right outside that city, which the Marxists had designed to be a kind of worker's paradise. It turned out to be more like a, a nightmare that the factory workers couldn't wake up from for them and for their family members. And as a silent protest, the family members of all the factory workers in Novohuda would go up at night and plant these white crosses on the hillside. And then when the morning sun rose, the authorities would tear them down. And then when night came, hundreds were put back, hundreds were taken down until the communists finally gave up after thousands and tens of thousands of crosses were planted on the hillside. That's where John Paul went. And that's when John Paul used the phrase new evangelization for the first time, because what was new about the new evangelization was not sharing the gospel with those who had never heard of Jesus like missionaries had been doing for 2,000 years throughout the whole world. What he identified as the principal meaning of the new evangelization was to re-evangelize the de-Christianized, was to evangelize those who may have been baptized but who had kind of wandered or strayed or simply through the influence of secularization had kind of stopped the practice of the faith. And so to stir up the embers of his own countrymen, he spoke of this on that occasion. And then shortly afterwards, he got to the capital. And this was the famous scene that you might have read about or seen the YouTube videos of because he was about to get up to speak and then to celebrate mass when all of a sudden, unprompted, the people out there, almost two million, the authorities were astounded because they thought they could keep it down to around 100,000. And then over a million and a half Poles spontaneously began to chant, we want God, we want God. A country that had practically forgotten its faith under the pressures of Nazis and communists for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, shouting louder and louder until finally after 17 minutes, John Paul quieted the crowd. We know what impact that had on the authorities because the head of the KGB wrote in his journal that night, which was published decades later, it's over. He knew it. As soon as he saw the faith of the Poles reawaken with such power, he knew the days of communists were over. It took 10 years for the Iron Curtain to finally come down in John Paul's homeland back in 89, 10 years after he had gone. But in fact, the new evangelization is precisely what sparked that fire that really became the flame of faith that reignited Poland. But here's an interesting fact that I discovered. He didn't use the phrase again in that year, 79 or 80, 81 or 82. 
He didn't use that phrase new evangelization again until he came to America in 1983. And he recognized a similar problem with the forces of secularization, not communism, not Nazism, but a kind of consumerism, a materialism that offered all these pleasures but no joy. And so in speaking to hundreds of bishops from America, from North America, Central America, and South America, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, he didn't just use the phrase one more time, he identified the phrase as a priority, as a project, as a mission statement. And so in 1983, he announced that the new evangelization was going to sort of become like the top priority, and not only for that year, not only for this part of the world, but for the rest of his ministry, for the rest of the century. But curiously, he also mentioned in passing in 1983 that it was his hope that it would be really launched with power in 1992, nine years later. And afterwards, they, they asked him, why wait? You know, what's the point of waiting nine years? He said, well, we'll still be evangelizing, but 1992, he pointed out, would mark the 500th anniversary of the founding and the first evangelizing of the Americas. So when you go back five centuries, what were the most populous Catholic countries in the world back then? They were Spain, Italy, and France, and Germany as well. You fast forward five centuries, and what are they today? In first place, Brazil. In second place, Mexico. And in third place, our own United States. Countries that didn't even exist 500 years earlier are now the most populous Catholic countries on the planet. And the ones that once were have lost so much of their own spiritual legacy, their own faith, that people are wondering if they're even going to be Catholic. And the question that John Paul was really putting to the Americas was this. Where will you be in 500 years, or for four, or three, or 200 years? And he wasn't prognosticating. He was simply saying that all depends on what you do with this challenge, this mission, this task, the new evangelization. And so in preparation for 1992, and by the way, just parenthetically, I want to mention that I just got back last week with my 14-year-old son, David, from our very first pilgrimage ever to Guadalupe, in Mexico City, where so much of this evangelizing first happened way back in those four amazing days from December 9th to December 12th in 1531, where Our Lady appeared to now St. Juan Diego, this uh, Aztec convert who had been a Catholic seven years. And it was so cool for me to discover he was my age when he had these visions. And we got to see that Tilma that under the best of conditions wouldn't last more than 40 or 50 years, and now almost 500 years later, it is still miraculously preserved so that atheist experts can't explain that or the fact that there is no pigment known to humans that would account for why the image hasn't faded. And, you know, within 10 years, 9 million Indians were evangelized and catechized and baptized, even more than what we lost to the Reformation in Europe in that same decade. But even more, what you can see when you go there as pilgrims is that the effects of this woman, the Virgin of Guadalupe, I mean, she really has launched an evangelization that has never ceased. We saw tens of thousands of Mexicans, but also people from all around the world, you know, on their feet, on their knees. I would recommend that you consider taking a pilgrimage there someday. End of ad. <laughs> 
But when 1992 rolled around, actually a couple of years before 92 rolled around, uh, John Paul made it clear to the whole world that the new evangelization was gonna become priority number one. He published a document in 1990 in preparation for 92. In Latin, the title was Redemptoris Missio. In English, the mission of the Redeemer. And from the beginning to the end, it's all about evangelization and especially the new evangelization. And this is where he states his thesis from the very outset, very clearly. He says, and I quote, the moment has come to commit all of the church's energies to the new evangelization. And then he went on, no believer in Christ, no institution of the church can avoid this supreme duty to proclaim Christ to all peoples. Now hear me out because this was not a man who was given to exaggeration or overstatement. He says, I sense that the moment has come to commit all of the church's energies, not just a lot, not even most, but all of them. No believer in Christ, no institution of the church, he issued no exemptions. This isn't just for the clergy, it isn't just for the religious, it isn't just for the missionary societies, this is for each and every single Catholic Christian believer. No believer in Christ, no institution of the church can avoid this supreme duty, the new evangelization to proclaim Christ to all peoples. Now you might remember that he also went on to kind of surprise the world because in the early 90s he announced that the next World Youth Day would be held where? In the United States, in Denver, Colorado, of all places. The critics wasted no time in showing what bad judgment that was because all of the previous World Youth Days had been great successes because they had been held in Catholic countries. Czestochowa, Poland, Santiago de Compostela, Buenos Aires, Rome, and so on. This was the first time he was actually going to have a World Youth Day in a largely non-Catholic country where the Catholic youth, according to the media, didn't really care what this aging Pope had to say, and they didn't even know much about the pilgrimage tradition and so a number of journalists admitted that they had already written their rough drafts before they showed up at Mile High Stadium until the helicopter carrying the Pope began circling overhead where over a million young people ended up gathering. And the cameras captured how the helicopter was visibly buffeted by the forceful cries and the shouts and the applause of over a million young people who couldn't wait to greet their spiritual father. And thus, a new page in church history, a whole new chapter in American Catholic history was being written in their very presence. And so much has happened since that World Youth Day. But when 92 actually rolled around, you know, I had been a Catholic at that point about six years, and I was keeping close tabs on what this was all about, the new evangelization. The Pope made it ever clearer in the first few months of that year that the new evangelization is new precisely because we're not just going out to the hinterlands and proclaiming the gospel to those who've never heard of Jesus or encountered the Catholic faith. The new evangelization is new, he said repeatedly, because of the great need to reawaken faith in peoples who are losing it, to re-evangelize the de-Christianized, to evangelize the baptized in effect. And so this is what happened. But it was curious also because in 92, he published a document that explained his sort of approach to this. It was published in the official Vatican newspaper entitled, Base the New Evangelization on the Eucharist. I remember getting that issue of the paper and seeing the headline and thinking, okay, 
that seems a little off. You know, well, you base everything on the Eucharist, but I mean, how do you base evangelization on the Eucharist? But he went on to say that the source, the Eucharist is the source and the summit and the basis for all evangelization. He wasn't the only one saying it back then. In fact, Cardinal George had come out with a, a famous statement too that all evangelizers proclaim Christ, but Catholic evangelizers proclaim a Eucharistic Christ. More recently, Archbishop Gomez out in Los Angeles explained how our evangelization as Catholics must be, as he described it, intensely Eucharistic. I mean, that sounds good, but I mean, how does it work? In 92, as I had said, you know, I had been a Catholic about six years, but I had been an evangelical Christian for well over a decade. And ever since, you know, my conversion in 10th grade, I had been taught how to evangelize, how to share the gospel, and it was short and simple. We could get it done in four easy steps, or what we call the four spiritual laws. We were taught this as soon as we had converted, that you should be able to explain to someone the fact that God loves you. Number two, that you've sinned and fallen short of that love. But number three, Christ died for that sin of yours and mine. So four, you've got to choose what to do. If you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. You will have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we would go on to explain that once saved, always saved, which is something that Catholics would diverge from a little bit. But the point is that the four simple steps that we used to share all the time are essential truths for Catholics as much as for evangelical Protestants. But the fact is, we, we learned how to share that under any circumstance. You know, you might be on board a plane getting ready to descend and land. You might be on an elevator going down three or four floors. But you could just say, do you know that God loves you? But we've all sinned and fallen short of it, but Christ died for that, so you can choose to believe and enter into this life. The elevator doors open, you could step out into the lobby, lead him in what we call the sinner's prayer, where you just summarize those four truths. But what occurred to me as a Catholic back in 92, you know, at that point, you couldn't invite that person to walk down, a, you know, walk down the, the street a few blocks to the local Catholic parish because here is your first Holy Communion. They wouldn't be ready for that. So how do you base the new evangelization on the Eucharist if you can't turn around after they pray the sinner's prayer and give them Holy Communion? That's when I began to realize that evangelization starts off the same way for us as Catholics as it does for non-Catholics, but it's different because while we would affirm those four spiritual laws wholeheartedly, we wouldn't say that those four steps take you all the way home. We would say that those are more like the first four steps that the prodigal son took on the long journey back home to his father's house. They're absolutely necessary to believe the core of the gospel, that God loves me, that I have sinned, that Christ died for that, and I've got to believe, I've got to convert. But in the early church, that was the beginning. And this is where the new evangelization has some lessons to learn from the old evangelization, as I discovered. Because, you know, evangelization can begin in a day, but it's not over and done in a day, much less in four or five minutes. For evangelical Catholics, I know that term might seem a little strange, but what I was learning at the time was that in becoming Catholic, I didn't cease to be evangelical or become less evangelical. If anything, I took the evangel, the good news, to the next level. But for us as evangelicals, as necessary as those first four steps are, it isn't just about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
It's about something much more than a personal relationship. It's not a sprint, it's more like a marathon. It's about falling in love with our Lord, but it's also about growing in that love and then learning how to stay committed in that love through something that goes beyond a personal relationship to what sacred scripture calls a covenantal relationship. And so in the first four or five centuries of the early church, when the old evangelization was launched in a very pagan Roman empire that like our society back then was a culture of death. I mean, what are the chances of a dozen Galilean fishermen converting a pagan culture of death known as the Roman empire? I mean, forget it, impossible. And yet against all odds, God did it back then through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, through their successors, but not just the bishops and priests, but the lay people as well. I am convinced that if God could do it back then, there's no reason to think he can't do it again. In fact, I am convinced that God wants to do it again more than we want him to. And he's able to use us more than we have enough faith to ask him to. But I think we're here for a purpose. I think we're here so that we can together ask him to increase our faith and learn how he can use us even if we don't have all the answers but we have friends and we have family and we have opportunities more on that in just a minute but this is where i discovered that in the early church the old evangelization got started the same way i used to do it when i was an evangelical they would say god loves you that you sin that jesus died for that sin and you now must choose to believe but that was the beginning, because after that first evangelizing, or what they call initial evangelization, if you were sincere in believing, if you had faith, they would ask you to kind of prove it. Because after you got evangelized, if you were really a sincere believer, you would sign up for the catechumenate. You would now be catechized. You would learn the Our Father. You would learn the Apostles' Creed. You would learn all of what is involved in saying, I believe. And when you were catechized in the catechumenate, it wasn't like the good news was no longer heard. If anything, evangelizing went up to the next level because you heard just how much better the good news was than you heard it the first time around. But that catechizing wasn't the end game because all of that was preparation for Easter Vigil. What might be coming up months from then when you signed up, because on the Easter Vigil, having been evangelized and then catechized, suddenly you were ushered into baptismal, Eucharistic communion. And this is what the new evangelization has to integrate from the old evangelization. In fact, the catechism is really pretty clear on this, because when you look at the catechism, when it describes the task of evangelization, listen to this one paragraph in 1229. Becoming a Christian, the catechism says, has always been accomplished as a journey in separate stages in which certain essential elements need to be present. Number one, the proclamation of the gospel and the acceptance of the truth. And that entails initial conversion. Number two, the profession of faith. That refers to the Apostles' Creed that you learned as a catechumen along with the Apostles' Creed or the, uh, the Lord's Prayer and how to pray and fast. And then third, baptism itself, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, confirmation, and that admission to Eucharistic communion. And that's not the only place. In paragraph 1617, the catechism echoes this and says that the entire Christian life 
bears the mark of Christ's spousal love of the church. Already baptism is entering into the people of God. It's a nuptial mystery. It is, so to speak, the nuptial bath which precedes the wedding feast, the Eucharist, where the bride of Christ receives the body of Christ. You see what the church is pointing to. It isn't simply accepting four spiritual truths. It isn't simply entering into a personal relationship with Jesus. That is necessary, but it's not sufficient because that's merely the beginning. And the analogy that the church was using in the catechism, echoing what we find in Scripture and in the early church, is something I can immediately relate to. Because about 37 years ago, I saw this gal on Grove City's campus, and I just couldn't get her out of my mind. And so I wanted to have a personal relationship with her. And so I went out of my way. You know, we, we ran into each other in the mailroom, the cafeteria, right outside of her class. And then imagine running into Scott in the lobby of the girl's dormitory. Well, I didn't tell her that her roommate had secretly given me her schedule. And so all of these chance meetings were, you know, divinely orchestrated until I finally got up enough nerve to ask her out on a date. And then she said, sure. And so we went out and we did it again. And then three or four times later, it occurred to me, I've got a personal relationship with the most gorgeous gal on campus and I'm enjoying every minute of it. But I got to tell you the truth, that wasn't the end game. It wasn't enough just to have a personal relationship. And after a few months of this, you know, I finally got to the point where on January 23rd on Rainbow Bridge in the lightly falling snow, I got down on my knees and I pulled out the ring and I popped the question. You know, that night, you know, I like to say that in the Gospels, Jesus gives sight to the blind. That night, he took sight away from she who could see. She accepted my proposal right on the spot. We hugged, we kissed, we danced across Rainbow Bridge. And just to celebrate, I took her out to Mr. Donut. <laughs> Big spender I was. <laughs> but I knew I was a senior getting ready to graduate and move on to graduate school. We didn't have a lot, but we, we sure felt a lot of love. But we move from courtship into engagement. We move from a personal relationship into a commitment that was sort of contractually binding because of the exchange of promises. And you know what they say, that when you marry a gal, you don't just marry her, you marry her whole family. Well, that's what I found out in the next five or six months because I got to know her parents and her siblings, her aunts and uncles and her cousins, and I'm like, whoa, what am I getting myself into? I mean, they're wonderful, but I already have one of these, you know? And it's a lot like that in the early church. Evangelizing is a personal relationship. But when you're catechized, you learn that the gospel goes beyond just a personal relationship. His family becomes yours. His father is now your father, and you learn how to pray to him as our father in art, who art in heaven. And I believe in God the Father Almighty. But even that's not the end game. That isn't the goal, because the goal for us came what was it, August 18th, 1979. And we didn't just, you know, do a contract. We didn't just celebrate a covenant. We entered into the mystery of the sacrament of matrimony even more than we understood at the time because we were still evangelical, Protestants. But I'll be honest, this gave to us a kind of analogy in the natural order in human experience that helps me understand exactly where the new evangelization works and how the old evangelization succeeded against all odds. Because tens of millions, hundreds of millions over the course of centuries were evangelized and then catechized and then baptized. 
in order to enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb, in order to enter into the family of God. And for me, that's what sort of courtship and engagement in marriage was. It's about falling in love, it's about growing in love, but it's also learning how to stay committed in a covenant relationship that goes beyond mere companionship. But the analogy also works according to Pope Francis and before him, Pope Benedict and John Paul, because the fact is there are many people who find themselves in a marriage and yet alone, who find themselves in a marriage and yet they're unhappy, who find themselves wedded to the same person, but sort of a lonely situation. And so just as we have to evangelize the baptized or re-evangelize the de-Christianized, so there's a certain sense in which we have to recognize that in our own natural experience, we go through seasons of life, seasons of love, where you're not always feeling that same exuberant joy that you did on your wedding day or in the, in the engagement period or in your first few dates. In fact, for us, you know, it was an interesting thing because I entered the Catholic Church in 86. My wife didn't come into the church until 1990. And for four years, I wasn't sure if she ever would. And it wasn't easy. It was hard. In fact, it was stressful. There was a lot of tension. We developed some bad communication skills that we weren't even fully aware of until after she entered the church. And after about a year or two of both of us being Catholic, we realized we're still, you know, sort of striking sparks where we shouldn't. So we did something that a friend or two recommended. You know, we went to a, a counselor. We went to counseling for months. Now, I know some people were like, oh, I, I would never do that. And that's where I was until we recognized this could help. And boy, did it ever. I went to the counselor for months. She went on her own. And then he brought us together. And over the course of that period, he showed us that every marriage, every couple goes through seasons of life, seasons of love. And he helped us kind of, you know, go back in time and recognize how we entered a springtime when we were first falling in love and we were engaged. Summertime came when we got married and it was nice and hot and beautiful and all of that. Autumn came when the kids started coming. I got a job and I started reading and things started coming up Catholic and that wasn't a source of happiness or peace. And when I came into the church way back in 86, a long, cold winter like the one we're in now came upon us. And for the next four years, it was really hard. And it wasn't until after she came into the church and we sat down with this counselor that he said, you could have a new springtime. And he would ask me questions that I thought were kind of silly or superficial, like, what's the first movie you saw? You know, Heaven Can Wait. What's the, what's the, the first song you danced to after you got married? Orlean, still the one, you know, and then where were you when you took her out on a date to the first restaurant after Mr. Donut? And then he said, go back to the restaurant, not to Mr. Donut, go back to the Guthrie Theater, go back and find a place where you can play that song and dance. And we dutifully did it, and in the process, we fell back in love in a way that we didn't think we could. And I'd like to propose to you that we were already experiencing something about the new evangelization by discovering that the sacrament of marriage is not just a contract, it's a covenant. It's not just a sacred covenant, it's a sacrament where God gives us what we need, he makes up for what we lack in order to renew our love because he is the bond that unites us and he is the source of grace. But it also serves as a model or an analogy because of how many Catholics these days 
are sort of part of God's family. They were baptized into the body of Christ. They are a part of the bride of Christ. They have received the Eucharist, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb, and yet they fall out of love. You know, they take it for granted. They believed or they understood it better when they were young, when they were confirmed or whatever. In fact, I just came across some statistics from the Pew Research Center. Uh, three years of close research of Americans who grew up Catholic. And this is the result of it. We read from the Pew Research Center findings, only 30% of Americans who were raised Catholic still describe themselves as practicing, quote unquote, by which the survey defines attending mass at least once a month. That's practicing. I tell you, my 14-year-old practices the piano a whole lot more than once a month. Another 38% still cling to the label of Catholic as cultural Catholics. 38% but seldom or never attend Mass. The other 32% no longer even call themselves Catholics in any way. Of these, 3% have decided to follow a non-Christian religion, 14% describe themselves as unaffiliated, but 15% have joined independent, non-denominational, fundamentalist, and Protestant faith communities. 15%. Remember the parable of what the Good Shepherd does when he's got 101 strays, he leaves the 99 to go find the one. We're not talking about leaving 99 to find the one. We're talking about going out and finding literally millions of Catholics who have wandered, who have strayed. The single largest religious group in America is Catholic Americans. But so often, as the Pew Center showed, they're much more American than they are Catholic. The second largest religious group is the Southern Baptists. But the research shows that between the largest group, Catholics, and the second largest group, Southern Baptists, Non-practicing Catholics actually represent the second largest group, tens of millions. And the fact is, Bishop Zubik doesn't know every single one of them. And the parish priests in your local communities probably don't have them all on the rolls either. The fact is, you know them even if you don't know exactly where they are. Because what John Paul and Benedict and now Francis have gone on to explain is that the new evangelization is gonna take place not when people stand on street corners and preach the gospel as Catholics the way fundamentalists do, but when they enter more deeply into friendships and share their faith with friends in a way that your parish priest might never be able to do. Chances are you know people in your neighborhood who might never come to Saints John and Paul. They might never get a chance to meet the pastor here or down the street. Their only contact, their only connection might be their friendship with you. It might be a project that you collaborate on at work. It might be the carpool. It, you know, it might be the soccer game that you go to week after week because your kids and their kids are on the same team. But they're not just numbers. They're friends. They're neighbors. And often, they're, they're often family members. And what, what Pope Francis has pointed out in this amazing new document, The Joy of the Gospel, Evangelii Gaudium, is this, that friendship is not only the context in which we share our faith, friendship is the message of the faith that we share. What did Jesus say to his disciples in the upper room? I no longer call you servants or slaves because 
the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. I now call you friends. Why? Precisely because you know what I'm doing. You know what the Father is doing. And so now, you're not employees in a factory. You're my brothers in God's family. And since friendship is the very heart of the gospel, friendship is the very context in which we share it. The medium is the message. Not only do we share the truth that Christ has established friendship with God, the Father has sent the Son to pour out the spirit of sonship to make us his sons and daughters, to make us brothers and sisters, to bring us into the fullness of the faith which is the family of God called the Catholic Church. But what better way to communicate the truth of divine friendship than through human friendship? This is the heart and soul of what it means to be involved in the new evangelization. Let's face it, you know, Next Monday, if you're at work, you know, and the coffee break comes and you're over there standing by the water cooler, nobody's going to think you're weird if you say, you know, last Friday I, I, went to, I, I went to see this new movie. Oh, we really enjoyed it. I'd recommend it. I mean, nobody would stare there, stand there and stare and say, who do you think you are to impose your theater on the rest of us? <laughs> no, because friends do that. And if you went on to say, you know, we went out to a restaurant, you know, uh, up in Wexford, and boy, I tell you, the cuisine was great. Oh, I really recommend this dish. They're not going to say, who are you to shove your culinary taste down our throats? They'll probably thank you. And within a few weeks, who knows, they might even go and tell you what they thought of it, because that's what friends do. They share the things that they enjoy. And so in that same sort of context or setting, if you say, you know, I went to this event, I heard this talk, or I'm just I'm listening to a CD. And I'll be honest, I grew up Catholic, but I think I took a lot of it for granted or I just kind of wandered away. Suddenly it's meaning more to me than it did way back when. This, I, I didn't see it coming. I mean, nobody might say, will you please give us a Bible study here? You know, they might not say anything, but in a couple of weeks, you know, when you're carpooling, somebody might say, you know, could I listen to that CD? Or what are you doing tomorrow for lunch? Because in the context of friendship, you can share that sort of joy in a way that is natural and also supernatural in its effects. Now, I also want to point out that we don't manipulate friendship and just use it, you know, to kind of gather spiritual scalps and get more converts because friendship is not something that we manipulate. It's something that we enjoy, but precisely because it is, we can share the faith as we're coming to experience it more. And the fact that Pope Francis, just a few weeks ago, published The Joy of the Gospel, Evangelii Evangelii Gaudium, is really, it's one of those signs of the times because it's the joy of the gospel. You know, most of you probably wouldn't raise your hand if I said, how many of you can prove every doctrine of the Catholic faith from the Bible? You know, or how many of you could answer all of the common objections that non-Catholics or ex-Catholics raise? Or how many of you could explain every article of the Catechism? The fact is, you don't need to do any of those things. All you've got to do is enjoy being Catholic a little more each day. Because let's face it, the world offers all these pleasures, none of which last, but it doesn't offer any kind of permanent joy. And that's what people look for. That's what they're longing for. And that's what God alone can give. Joy is something that people find irresistible. Joy is also something that people find irrefutable because it's not an argument. It's just sharing your own experience. And you don't pretend to know more than you do. 
If somebody asks you a question you can't answer it, it's a great opportunity to grow in humility. I don't know. I'll look into it. I'll get back to you if I can find something. And then when you do, you're doing it as a friend. I am convinced that this is the principal way that the new evangelization is going to take place. It's going to be Eucharistic, for sure, in order to be Catholic. But it's going to be rooted in the, in the context of friendship where we share the things that we enjoy. And I would also say that it kind of illustrates the fact that conversion for us as Catholics is not something that is over and done in the past. It's not over and done in a day. It isn't simply something that I experienced, you know, when I was baptized by my Presbyterian parents as an infant or when I came into the Catholic Church at the Easter Vigil. Conversion for us as Catholics is something that is ongoing. It's lifelong. It's ever-deepening. But it's never easy. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said, if anybody wants to follow me, he must take up his, his Bible every day and follow me. I wish he had said that. You had to take up your rosary beads every day and follow me. Don't get me wrong. I've got my rosary beads right here in my pocket, and I've got my Bible right here. But it's the cross that makes conversion difficult. It never gets easy. But it's the source of joy in the midst of difficulty in a way that the world can never deliver, in a way that Christ not only died to deliver, but he now is the source of this sort of thing for us. And I'll admit it, I don't always wake up and say, wow, I am just filled with the joy of the Lord. I mean, I can know, Nehemiah 8.10, that the joy of the Lord is my strength. But I often feel weak, and I often feel just, you know, weary. But it's precisely the truth that we hear in God's Word, that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Now, when you hear that, you're tempted, okay, God's strength is made perfect in my weakness, But when I get over my weakness and I'm getting strong, then God's strength is going to be even stronger, right? No, that's not the point. God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. God's love is proven in our suffering. And so when we experience this joy, we experience the grace of an ongoing conversion that is lifelong, that is ever-deepening, that is never easy. But it becomes the fountainhead, not only for us to evangelize our friends, but for us to acknowledge to them and to ourselves and to our Lord that we are constantly in need of being re-evangelized. I've got to grow in my faith. I've got to learn it more. Just like I've got to go home tonight and be a good husband, be a good father, be a good father-in-law, be a good grandfather as well. Those relationships pull us out of ourselves, and in the process, we find ourselves. And even if they feel like crosses someday, hey, we all know, no pain, no gain. But Nautilus didn't invent that. Jesus taught the world, no cross, no crown. He doesn't just bear a cross for us. He bestows a cross on us and then a crown of glory if we follow him to the end and bring as many friends and family members with us as we can. You know, all of this sounds good, and it did for years, But it really came home to me one day I was standing there in the Pittsburgh airport. I was getting ready to fly off and give some talk, and this guy came up and said, are you Scott Hahn? And I'm like, yeah, and I'm thinking he must watch EWTN. And he just stands there, you don't recognize me? And I'm like, thinking TV doesn't work that way, you know? It's it's not two-way, it's just one, you know? And I'm like, should I? And he said, come on, we graduated from St. Clair in 75 together. 
And all of a sudden, I recognized Chris. And we shook hands, we embraced. He said, I have been looking forward to this day for so long. And I'm thinking to myself, we were friends. We were good friends. We weren't that good. I mean, I have been looking for, and I'm like, why? He said, because you remember what it was like back then. You know, when we were in high school, I was a cradle Catholic, but I am now like you. I am an evangelical Bible Christian, and I couldn't wait to see you and share it. And I'm like, okay, huh. <laughs> and I'm wondering, how do I put this to him? I'm like, well, I got some news for you, Chris, because I am now an evangelical Bible Catholic Christian, like you once were. And I mean, he was shocked. His jaw dropped. He's like, no way, not you. <laughs> I mean, you're the last person. I know, I admit it. And he's like, how'd that happen? I'm like, well, my flight is starting to board. I don't have the time to explain. Here's my card. He gave me his. Within one week, we were on the phone. And in that first phone call, I mean, after we exchanged greetings and the pleasantries, you know, in 30 seconds, he didn't waste any time. He's like, so you're a Catholic now. Well, you remember back in the cafeteria, you'd sit down with me and my friends. We would talk the Steelers, the Pirates, whatever. You know, and you'd always enter into the conversation and then, you know, quickly move it into things that had to do with the Bible and Jesus. Remember that? I'm like, no, to be honest, I don't. But it sounds like, you know... My, my modus operandi. He said, oh yeah. But I mean, one question you put to me and my friends more than once was the question I want to put to you. Where in the New Testament do you find the sacrifice of the mass? You remember asking us that? And I'm like, no, but again, that sounds like what I had done. He said, oh, you did it. Yeah. And then you'd point out that the mass is not a sacrifice. The mass is a meal. The sacrifice, the only sacrifice is Calvary. I'm like, yeah, that, that, that sounds familiar too. And he's like, okay. And suddenly I realized what he was doing. He was turning the cafeteria tables right around on me. So, Scott, where in the New Testament do you find the sacrifice of the Mass? And I'm thinking, make my day. <laughs> you know? Here I was, I was in the car on the turnpike driving to St. Vincent's Seminary to teach seminarians all about the Bible and the Eucharist. And after that phone conversation, I put aside my lecture notes and shared with them my conversation with him. Because for the next hour or so, I'm like, okay, well, Chris, let's first acknowledge just how much common ground we still share because we're Christians. Whether we're Catholic or Protestant, the fact is we both believe that Calvary is the sacrifice. You could hear him heave a sigh of relief. Whew, I thought there for a minute you were really a Catholic. <laughs> I'm like, Chris, Catholics believe that Calvary is a sacrifice. He said, I didn't really, I, I, honestly, I grew up in the 70s and back then we didn't really know what we were supposed to believe. We weren't catechized all that well. I'm like, I apologize. But the fact is, we believe that, whether we're Catholic or Protestant. But I said, you know, once we identify the common ground that we stand on, it wouldn't hurt just to take a step back and notice something that the early church fathers showed me several years ago that I had never seen before. And I didn't see it coming. Because what they pointed out to me was that if we had been, you know, numbered among the, the Jewish disciples who had been following Jesus for a number of years, you know, two or three, and we had been there at Calvary, none of us standing there witnessing the crucifixion would have gone home that night and described to our family members and friends that what we had witnessed was a sacrifice. Because as devout Jews, we would have known that for a sacrifice to, be, to take place, it has to be inside the 
the Jerusalem walls. It has to be inside the Jerusalem temple. It has to be on top of an altar with a Levitical priest standing there to preside at the liturgy of sacrifice, whereas Jesus was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem, far from the temple, where there were no altars with Levites standing by to offer a sacrifice. We would have gone home that night, and all we would have recounted would have been a Roman execution, and a rather brutal one at that. So the question the fathers put to me when I was reading these fathers of the first three or 400 years was, you know, how did a Roman execution suddenly get turned into a sacrifice? And not just any sacrifice, but the highest and the holiest sacrifice of all time that ends up retiring all of the animal offerings in the Jerusalem temple. How did an execution become the highest sacrifice of all? And I just let the question, you know, linger and there was dead silence for about 10 seconds. I let that linger just for dramatic effect. <laughs> it's like I never heard the question put that way. I said, Chris, I hadn't either until I was reading the early church fathers and they were putting the question that way, but they were coming up with an answer that I should have seen, but I never saw it coming because they'd always refer to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 where he wrote, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And he goes on to describe the Eucharist, or what we would call the Mass. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. That's the key that the early fathers used to unlock the mystery for me, because the only way you can make sense out of what happened to Jesus on Good Friday at Calvary is by backing up and looking at that in light of what he was doing in the upper room with the disciples the night before on Holy Thursday. Because what was he doing? He was celebrating the Passover. But that's not all he was doing. He was fulfilling it as the Lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So he came to celebrate it one last time. He came to fulfill the Passover of the Old Covenant, but he didn't fulfill it by doing away with it or retiring it. He fulfilled it by transforming the Passover of the Old Covenant into the Passover of the New Covenant. And I said, you know, what was the Passover in the Old or the New? It was never just a meal. It was always first a sacrifice. And the meal was only a sacrificial communion upon the sacrificial offering. You can just ask any lamb, he'll tell you it's not just a meal, it's a sacrifice. And I said, if that's true in the old, it isn't less true, but even more in the new, where Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. And so you gotta look at Holy, you gotta look at Good Friday in the light of Holy Thursday. And that's what the disciples must have done later on with the help of the Holy Spirit because everything would have been familiar to them because they all grew up Jewish. It was a familiar Passover liturgy until near the beginning, Jesus took that bread and spoke words that they'd never heard before. He said, take this and eat, eat of it, for this is my body which will be given up for you. And that must have sounded strange. Apparently nobody interrupted and asked him to explain this rhetorical flourish where he was seemingly to improvise, you know, they were back on track, they were familiar with everything else until near the end of the meal. And I pointed out, Chris, in Luke 22, verses 18 through 20, you can see that near the end of the familiar Passover, he takes the third cup, the cup of blessing, which they all knew so well, and then suddenly he says something they never heard. Once again, he says, this is the chalice or the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, the blood of the New Testament, the Greek words are kine diatheke. We can translate that either new covenant or new testament. 
Either way translates the same Greek phrase. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the New Testament poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. And there he goes again, you know, just kind of ad-libbing in a very sacred moment. And once more, the disciples didn't interrupt and say, what are you doing? But they must have wondered, you know, what is this new rhetoric we never heard before? What is this new ritual that he kind of added near the end? You know, a few moments later, they were leaving to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and everything began to unfold before their eyes in a way that just seemed so tragic and unfortunate. It wasn't until after the resurrection, it wasn't until after the Holy Spirit came into their hearts and illuminated their minds, Chris, that suddenly they would have realized what was happening, that he was celebrating the Passover one last time, he was fulfilling it precisely by transforming the old into the new. And so I said, you know, when you ask the question, where in the New Testament do you find the sacrifice in the Mass? Because the Mass is just a meal. I said, Chris, if the Mass is just a meal, then it's not a Passover. But if the Eucharist that he instituted was the Passover of the New Covenant, it couldn't be just a meal. It had to be a sacrifice. And that's what makes sense out of what he said. This is my body which will be given up. This blood will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. This wasn't just rhetoric. It wasn't just ritual. The reality became manifest the very next day when his body was given up and his blood was poured out and our sins were forgiven. I said, if the mass is just a meal, then Calvary is just an execution. He's like, whoa, say that again. Like, I know, I'll say it again. But it hit you like it hit me a few years ago. If the Mass is just a meal, Calvary is just an execution. But if the Mass is, in fact, the Passover of the New Covenant, which is what Jesus called it, then it can't be just a meal. It had to be a sacrifice. And then suddenly we realize he didn't lose his life on Calvary Good Friday. If he'd already made it a gift of love on Holy Thursday when he instituted the Eucharist. I said, Chris, the, for the early church fathers, he wasn't the victim of Roman violence as much as he was the victim of divine love and mercy. I said, Holy Thursday is the only thing that transforms Good Friday from being an execution into being the sacrifice. The Eucharist that he instituted is where the sacrifice is initiated. Calvary is where that sacrifice is consummated. You can't understand either one without the other because they're inseparably united. They're fused. They illuminate each other. And I said, if Holy Thursday is what transformed Good Friday from being an execution into a sacrifice, I said, Easter Sunday is what transforms that sacrifice into a sacrament, which we can now do in memory of him precisely because his body is no longer bleeding on a cross. It isn't buried in a tomb. It's raised from the dead. It's ascended on high. He is at the right hand of the Father. As a royal high priest, he offers himself in his glorified body, and that's what the Holy Eucharist is. Long pause. Like, whew. And I know, I know. A lot to squeeze through in an hour. is like an ocean through a funnel, you know. And I said, okay, I'll leave you with that, and then why don't we get back together again in a few weeks? He said, how about next week? I said, sure thing. You know, I'll be driving back to Latrobe from Steubenville. We can do it again. So one week later, we were back on the phone. And he's like, I'll be honest. I got some of it, but not all of it. Let's go back. You know, okay, where in the New Testament do you find the sacrifice of the Mass? What did you say? That if the Mass is just a meal, then I said, Calvary is just an execution. Yeah, that, that really hit me. That, 
That seems to make some sense. I'm like, yeah, it, it did for me. So how would you answer the question, where in the New Testament do you find the sacrifice of the Mass? Like, okay, we're back to that. Let's take another angle. Let's look at it from one other perspective because you and I both know not only that Calvary is the sacrifice and not just an execution, but you and I both know what you mean when you ask the question the way I did. Where in the New Testament do you find the sacrifice of the Mass? Because the New Testament is for us, you know, a cherished legacy. It is a sacred book. I said, you know, the New Testament from Matthew to the Apocalypse, 27 books that are gathered together into one. But I said, if you look carefully, you'll discover what the early church fathers showed me once again, that when you read the New Testament, it uses the phrase New Testament, but it never uses the phrase New Testament referring to itself. I said, it's an interesting fact that Jesus only uses that phrase on one single occasion. And it's precisely in Luke 22, in the upper room, in the context of celebrating the Passover by fulfilling it through instituting the Passover, the new covenant. This is where he says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the kine diatheke, the blood of the new testament, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins, and then what does he add? Do this in memory of me. Chris, what did he say? Do this. What is this? This is the Eucharist. And what is the Eucharist? The Eucharist is the only thing Jesus ever calls the New Testament. The only time he ever uses the phrase New Testament is when he says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the New Testament. And he says, do this in memory of me. And this is the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the New Testament. And that's what all the disciples went out and did preaching the gospel, baptizing new converts in Acts 2.42. They're celebrating the breaking of the Eucharistic bread. They were doing this in memory of him. I said, Holy Thursday transforms the execution to a sacrifice. Easter Sunday turned it into a sacrament because now they could do it in memory of me. But I said, if you look carefully, you'll notice something else. He says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the New Testament. He doesn't say, write this in memory of me. He doesn't say, read this in memory of me. He doesn't say, study it, memorize it. He says, do this, and this is the Eucharist, and the Eucharist is the New Testament. In fact, it's the only thing Jesus ever calls the New Testament. And long before Luke ever wrote his gospel, Paul was actually writing to the Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually employs that phrase, New Testament, for the very first time in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. And what is he describing? the institution of the Eucharist. He says on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and then after the supper, he takes the chalice, and what does he say? This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the New Testament. I said, Chris, if you really want to follow the New Testament, you're going to notice that the New Testament never calls itself the New Testament, but the one thing the New Testament is always referring to as the New Testament, either in the lips of our Lord or in the earliest section there in Paul in 1 Corinthians, is the Eucharist. I said, the bottom line is this, that the New Testament was a sacrament long before it ever started to become a document. According to the document, he's like, whoa, say that again? It's like Mufasa, you know? <laughs> okay, I'll say it again. The New Testament was a sacrament long before it started becoming a document. According to the document that never calls itself the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, and everywhere else, the New Testament is referring to the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. So to answer the question in a shorter way, 
where in the New Testament do you find the sacrifice of the Mass? I said, Chris, when Jesus instituted the Eucharist as the sacrifice of the Mass, that's the only thing he ever called the New Testament. The sacrifice of the Mass is the New Testament, according to the New Testament. You know, for me, for years, Chris, you know, I wanted to be a New Testament Christian until I discovered that in order to be a real New Testament Christian, I have to become a, a Eucharistic Catholic. And he gasped. He's like, whoa. Like, I know. I was more anti-Catholic than most anybody I've ever met. And I said, but look carefully. He said, do this in memory of me. And as a matter of historical fact, over half of the 12 in the upper room never ended up contributing a single book to the collection that we now call the New Testament, but not because they were disobeying orders, but because Jesus commanded them not to write this in memory, but to do this. I'm glad that some of them did write books that ended up in the New Testament, but I'm even happier that all of them went forth preaching the gospel and celebrating the Eucharist because that was the New Testament. Throughout the first century, in the New Testament documents and all of the other sources, it's the only thing that is consistently referred to as the New Testament. I said, in my studies, I discovered that it's not until, it's not until the year 190 AD, so about 160 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, that we find the first reference to this document, to this collection of books being referred to as the New Testament. But even in 190, they weren't being called the New Testament yet. In this anonymous note from around 190 AD, the writer is referring to these books as the books of the New Testament. Why? Because even at the end of the second century, the New Testament was the Eucharist. But because these were the books that were written by the apostles to be read on Sunday morning in preparation for our celebration of the Eucharist, since the Eucharist is the only thing we all know to be the New Testament, and these are the only books that are to be brought out and read in preparation to celebrate the Eucharist, if the Eucharist is the New Testament, we'll call these the books of the New Testament. This was a liturgical collection that had to be read on a liturgical occasion to illuminate the mystery of what is happening in the Eucharist every single Sunday. To be a New Testament Christian means to be a Eucharistic Catholic. And it's like, whoa, I know, I know, it takes time. Well, it took time, it took weeks, it took months, it took well over a year of conversation. And in the process, we entered into a deeper friendship than anything we'd enjoyed in high school. And in that context, I, you know, we would call each other, we would talk, and then we'd go a while. And I would share some books with him because I thought, you know, that's fitting, restitution for what I was doing in the cafeteria for him and others. But then for a while, we, we fell out of touch. And I thought, well, I must have pushed a little too far. You know, I sent him a few books and maybe I, I shouldn't have. Then out of the blue, one day, it was a Saturday afternoon, I get a call. I see my caller ID. Whoa, hey, Chris, long time no here. How are things? Great. And I'm thinking, did I push too far? Did I go too hard? You know, like my mom says I always do. He's like, no, things are going well. I'm like, you sound really in a good mood. He said, well, yeah, actually, we are, because Carol and I just read the Lamb's Supper, all about the Mass, all about the New Testament. And then we read your book, Lord Have Mercy, The Healing Power of Confession. He's like, nobody ever explained confession in a way that was attractive. Talk about free health care. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so, you know, divine medicine. He's like, I'm calling you because Carol and I are driving back from the local Catholic parish 
where we've just gone to confession for the first time in over 30 years. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, and you're in a good mood? He's like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not just because of confessing, he said, but because tomorrow morning we're driving back and we're gonna receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus in the Holy Eucharist for the first time in over three decades. And to be honest, Scott, we can't wait. And I'm like, Chris, you just made my year. And he's like, our Lord has just made ours. And suddenly it became clear to me, this is the new evangelization. It isn't just theory, it's practice. It isn't just theology, it's real life. It's friendship, it's joy, it's Eucharistic. It's the gospel according to the Catholic faith where it's a personal relationship to be sure, but it's a family bond that we share with God as a father, with Christ as the brother, with Mary as his mother, with all the saints like older brothers and sisters, and we actually share flesh and blood like any family, only it's the Eucharistic flesh of Jesus. And in the process of getting closer to Chris and Carol and his family, I've also watched him now take all of the years of Bible training back into his parish where he's now teaching scripture in a Eucharistic way and showing that the New Testament was a sacrament long before it started becoming a document, according to the document. That if the Mass is just a meal, then Calvary is just an execution. But in fact, the Mass is the Passover of the New Covenant, and it transforms that execution into not the loss of life, but the gift of life. This is who we are as Catholics. This is what we do in every Mass. Whether we fully understand it or appreciate it, and who can fully understand or appreciate mysteries as awesome as these? I sure don't, and I could get 10 more PhDs and I still wouldn't. But it isn't something that we deserve. It isn't something we merit. It's more like a remedy that Christ has gained for us because he knows how much we need. And so when we go out, we go out and share the faith, not to win arguments, but to win brothers and sisters back into the fullness of God's family. Jesus suffered and died every bit as much for non-Catholics as he did for us. We're not just out there to try to reach them. We are them. The, the Catholic Church is not some health spa. It's a hospital for people who know that they're sick, who know that they're sinners, but they also know this divine physician is not only healing us, but he's using us to spread that medicine to other people who need it as well. For you to evangelize your family members or friends, it's just like one beggar telling another beggar where he found some great tasting bread. And it's free, but it's not cheap. Christ paid that price. But the bread of life is what we share. It's who we are as the body of Christ. And it's why the new evangelization is not just for clergy. It's not just for the religious, the monks and the nuns and the missionaries. It's for every single one of us to live out by allowing ourselves to experience the grace of being Catholic in new ways throughout the rest of our lives, but also to speak out in ways that are sensitive, subtle, the way friends really know friends. Find the way to scratch where people itch. Don't tell them where they ought to itch. <laughs> Share with them the joy that you have, and then allow the Holy Spirit to kind of make up the difference. And again, this is who we are as Catholics. This is what we do in every Mass. And this is why the new evangelization, I am convinced, is going to succeed beyond all expectations, against all odds, more than we believe, but not more than God believes.
We just need more faith to ask him to do more through us and to acknowledge the fact that it's not through my intellectual prowess, it's not through my rhetorical strategies, it's simply going to be through the joy of inhaling the breath of God's Spirit and then being a true friend and finding ways to share that word with other people. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we thank you once again for Jesus and for the good news and for the new evangelization and for the New Testament that we celebrate in every Mass. In his name, we pray for you to pour out the Holy Spirit, not only upon us, but upon our family members who have strayed, upon our friends and co-workers who've never heard, who, who have, but have kind of wandered away. Help us help them, but help us come more home than ever before. And hear us once again as we pray that family prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saints John and Paul, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you very much. We can have Q and A. Yep. Uh, thank you. Uh, you got a stretch break there too. <laughs> I apologize for going a little long, but I, I thought most of you looked like you're wide awake, so you just egged me on. I'm going to blame you. <laughs> anyway, we have some time for Q&A, and we've got some microphones, too, so that everybody gets to hear the question, and then uh, I'll try to keep it an you know, the answer brief. I would only ask you to kind of make the question brief so that as many people get a chance to ask it as possible. While you're thinking about a question, I might mention that the talk tonight is based upon a book that just came out a little while ago called Consuming the Word, the New Testament and the Eucharist in the Early Church. And so much of this was drawn from that. I also wanted to mention, though, that this book is a sequel to another one of my favorites called The Lamb's Supper, The Mass as Heaven on Earth, which I wrote, and that's the one that Chris and Carol was reading. There's another book uh, entitled Letter and Spirit that these form kind of a trilogy, uh, Lamb's Supper, Letter and Spirit, and Consuming the Word, and while I'm at it, I should mention a brand new one that came out just in time for next week. Remember, Ash Wednesday is right around the corner. This one is called Lenten Reflections, drawn from a father who keeps his promises. And so I just want to encourage you, if you want some easy breezy reading for Lent for you or for family members or friends, you might want to consider this as well. And uh, I mentioned the pilgrimage last week. We're going to do one more in May to Fatima and Lourdes, where I've never been before. And Kimberly and I, along with two of our kids, are going to be going from May 9 to 19th. And so if you're open to the possibility of joining us for Fatima and Lourdes and Spain, uh, you might want to grab one of those brochures for yourself or for someone you know. I've been stalling long enough. Are there any questions? 
Okay, well, I've got a couple more books then. <laughs> <laughs> this one is what uh, Chris and Carol mentioned, Lord Have Mercy, The Healing Power of Confession. If you know someone who hasn't been there for a long time, this might appeal to them. I'm looking around. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever heard of The God Delusion by uh, Dawkins. I have written a book called Answering the New Atheism. There's a form of devangelization that is really widespread in our high schools and colleges. Our young people are affected in ways that parents often don't even know. So this is like a, uh, a refutation of the arguments against God's existence. The last, oh, I have a question. Go for it. Um, Dr. Hunt, can you hear? Okay. Um, I wondered if you could comment on the use of social media. I think right now, um, particularly among our young people, is a uh, wonderful forum for the new evangelization, and I thought you might comment on that. Okay. So we're thinking, you know, the internet in general, the Twitter, as well as Facebook and uh, other means of social communication. I'll be honest, I, I'm a little wary of social media because I find that it can become a substitute for real friendship, for real relationships. You know, I've walked into restaurants and I've seen families gathered together. What a beautiful sight, but every one of them is texting. They're just ignoring each other. And it's just like, are you kidding? You know, one night out and you're not even noticing each other. And so I was very wary, a little hesitant until our very first grandchild was born. <laughs> Within 24 hours of our granddaughter's birth, I was on Facebook because there were like over a hundred pictures of our little baby and uh, and so I, I became you know a, a typical grandfather with Facebook and then I you know I, I, I noticed that we had some other family members who didn't have grandkids and friends and that sort of thing and so with a little bit of time and energy I I set up a Facebook account for Scott Hahn and you know I just discovered that you know maybe three minutes every other day I can put up something that inspires me and just in the last two weeks I, I, you get a report, 2.2 million people saw the things that I had posted about Pope Francis and the new evangelization. And it's just like, wow, it is no substitute for friendship. It isn't the same thing as just sharing the faith, you know, with family and friends, you know, but it is a way of building bridges that I never really thought of, you know. John Paul did, Pope Benedict, and now even more, Pope Francis. They're all tweeting or whatever, you know. I'm still not with Twitter yet. You know, I think I have an account because one of my kids set it up, but I don't even know how to use it. But I would say this, you know, when it comes to re-evangelizing you know, re the de-Christianized, I'm reminded, I just popped into my mind, uh, my old favorite comic was Peanuts. And there was one comic strip where Linus and Lucy are walking with Charlie Brown, and there's that little yellow bird, Woodstock, and his wings are held up, you know, and Linus says, you know, what is he doing? Well, you know, he heard that the sky is going to fall. And Lucy says, and that dumb bird thinks that he can hold up the entire sky with those two little wings, and they walk away laughing. And Woodstock just says, one does what one can. <laughs> I love that, because at the end of the day, that's all we can do. We do what we can, and then we hope that God can kick in the rest and make up for what we lack and for what others lack too. And that's why I'm not a believer in the social media, but I am a practitioner now, though I'm still somewhat of a novice. But I would say, keep doing what you can, you know? One other question over here? Anybody else? 
the, the lights are great, so I can't see who's got the mic. Right there. Okay. Yep, if you've got the mic. Yeah. Oh, first her and then you. Can you describe what exactly apologetics is? Because you're an apologetic, and I don't know what that is, but it might be something I'm interested in. Well, my wife would like to think it's because I'm a master at apologizing, <laughs> which I'm not. <laughs> so that's not what it means. It actually comes from the Greek word apologia. And if you look up 1 Peter 3.15, Peter reminds his readers that we should always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is within us. And the word for defense is apologia in the Greek. It's not an apology in the sense that we apologize for being Christians and just being too credulous or superstitious. It's actually a term that was used back in the first century for a reasonable explanation and sometimes even a legal defense to show how reasonable it is for us to put all of our faith in Christ. And then Peter goes on to say, always be prepared to make an apologia, a defense for the hope that is within you, but do it with reverence and gentleness. We revere the person who's made in the image and likeness of God. This is not a person we just want to beat, an argument we want to win. This is a person we want to respect and revere the way Jesus did. You know, when Jesus healed people, he sometimes said, don't tell anybody. You know, and it might seem as though he was using reverse psychology. I don't think he was. I think he's saying, look, I'm not just healing you to make myself the main event. I'm healing you because I love you, and healing you is enough. And so we share our faith with that kind of reverence as well as with gentleness. Um, and that's what apologetics is. Now, apologetics has become, you know, a lot more these days yeah. in terms of answering the common objections that are raised by atheists or agnostics or fundamentalists or by Jews or by ex-Catholics and that sort of thing. There are 101 different books and websites and CDs and, and that sort of thing. In fact, I might just use this as an occasion to mention uh, another social medium and that is Lighthouse Catholic Media. Uh, in the very back, there's a table where you can actually subscribe to these CDs that come out, the CD of the month. The talk this evening is actually available at my table called Evangelizing Catholics, the Bible, the Eucharist, and the New Evangelization. But all of these are sort of like apologetics, giving a defense for what we believe and why we believe it. And to be honest, I think it's greatly needed because when I grew up as an evangelical Protestant at Upper St. Clair High School, you know, getting my Catholic friends to doubt their faith and to leave their church was like as easy as duck soup. I mean, it was like picking off ducks in a barrel because they didn't know what they were supposed to believe, much less why. And so I find that when Catholics discover more of what they believe and the reasons why, you know, it's no longer that you're, you're 35, but you have the same faith that you had when you were 9 or 11. I mean, we would recognize that a person who is an adult with the intelligence of a 10-year-old is handicapped. I would say that apologetics helps people overcome their spiritual handicaps by really growing up their faith as much as it is in their own practical experience. I hope that helps. Thanks. Next question. I can't see through the lights. Okay, over there. Okay, so I'm a cradle Catholic and so much of what you said tonight makes sense as far as going out to people who aren't in the pew, but I sometimes feel like the people in the pew are just going through the, emotion, the motions and not really thinking about what they're doing as far as the Eucharist. Is there almost a way of evangelizing the practicing Catholics first so that we can light the fire to get them to go out to evangelize those that aren't coming to church? You know, 
for 20 years, I used to be a Pirates fan, and then for 20 years, I just, I, I wasn't. And you all know why, because of the record they broke, you know. And it was through two friends of mine who basically caught me up and got me to the games and, t- you know, to take my kids. And it was in the context of friendship that I went back and discovered this old childhood love of mine, you know. And I would say something similar happens through friendship, where you honestly admit, you know, I went through years as a Catholic where I was going through the motions. You don't say, you know what, I see you at Sunday Mass, but you sure look like a zombie. <laughs> it's better to say, I was at Mass for years, and looking back, I wonder if I wasn't a zombie, you know? And acknowledge from your own experience what it is that's been happening. And the fact is, you know, I think every single person here, especially me, we always need to be re-evangelized. Uh, and I would say another analogy that comes to mind is a lot of people who are married are going through the motions. Let's face it, even though it's a sacrament and a covenant, it's something that we, ca- we, t- we, we come to take for granted. And yet at the same time, because it's a sacrament, it stores the grace that we need to wake up and realize, what has this woman put up with me you know, for 35 years? I owe her big time. You know, and if I have trouble with certain weaknesses, what does Jesus say? Love your enemies. So I have no, you know, even when we're estranged, I've got to love her, but she is my bride. She is my covenant's partner. And I think it's one of those things that we have got to acknowledge that we go through throughout all of our lives. You know, Paul VI, when he launched this big emphasis on evangelization back in 1975, in that document on evangelization in the modern world, stressed the fact that what the modern world needs is not people to go out and give lectures to their friends or families, but people who go out and bear witness to the truth as they've experienced it. What this world needs now is witnesses more than simply teachers. Teaching in the way that you're bearing witness to the truth as you've come back to it. I think people find that much less threatening, you know, more inviting and more natural because it's what happened to me, with me this past season with the Pirates. It's what's happened with me and my bride of 35 years time and again. And I think it's what happens to all of us as Catholics where suddenly we realize we're going through the motions. We've been doing that for, for weeks and maybe months because of this illness or because of this situation or because, you know, God, I, I'm having trouble. You know, if you love me, why are you allowing these kinds of things to happen to my loved ones? And when we can finally articulate that and say, God, you're God, I'm not, but I would, if I were God, I, I wouldn't let these things happen. And God isn't up there saying, how dare you? I am the great and powerful Oz. You know, he's up there saying, I'm Abba. It's about time you open up your hearts. I, I've got to be careful. I'm not going to, I, I, I want to avoid a tangent, but I'll say this. Ten years ago, next month, I was in Assisi, and I almost lost my son, Joe, who one month earlier had an emergency appendectomy. And for whatever reason, the surgeon said, oh, he's fine to go on the pilgrimage to Rome in Assisi. So he went, and the flight was okay. But when we got to Assisi, he was doubled over in pain. We had to rush him to the hospital, which in Assisi, you don't want to have to do. It was a tiny little thing, under-equipped. And the doctor said, well, if the pain is on this side. That's a good thing, because if it switched to the other side, we'd have to do an emergency operation, and we're not equipped for it. Well, he spent the night in the hospital, and I spent the night with him, and by 10 p.m., it was on the other side, and he was screaming and crying, and I couldn't hug him because even that hurt, 
And by midnight, I just got on my knees, and I'm like, God, God, are you there? And I, yeah. And I, and I just said, you know, I need to pray. And he's like, what are you afraid of? And I'm like, what am I afraid of? The surgeon said that if it switches to the other side, they'll try to operate, but they're not sure what will happen. Well, I'm afraid of losing my son. And I felt like, is that all you're afraid of? No, my family's here, 150 pilgrims. I'm afraid of just, I'm out of control. Is that all you're afraid of? No, and after about 50 minutes, he helped me peel back all of these layers of fear after fear after fear. And I'm like, wow, it occurred to me, I'm not letting you know what my fears are. You're letting me know how controlled I am by my fears and how much I resent you and I don't trust you. Three hours later, I entered into this prayer where suddenly, you know, it was like the room was crowded with the angels and the saints, St. Saint Francis of Assisi and others. If somebody had flipped on the light and I'd seen their faces, it would have made, would, wouldn't have made them more real. By 3 a.m., I realized for three hours my son hadn't cried out once. I thought I'd better go to bed just in case, you know, we need surgery. The next morning, the doctor walked in in a hurry. He's like, we were assembling a team, and Joseph just sat up. He couldn't even, he was grimacing all night before. He sits up and he looks at the doctor and says, buongiorno. And the doctor looks at me, buongiorno, Giuseppe. What's up? And he goes, I feel great. You feel great? Yeah. And he got out of bed. He's like, well, the surgical team is being assembled. We got to run tests. I'm like, I got to say it fast. I prayed. God showed me my fears. All of these saints, he's like, I'm not religious. Like, okay, it doesn't matter because something happened here. He's like, I know. I live in Assisi. And things like this happen, which we can't explain scientifically, but we can't deny it either. Let me run the tests. And by noon, he said, it happened again. <laughs> and what I learned is, you know, what I needed was the grace of conversion. Because my Catholic faith had become my profession, my occupation. I was there for 150 pilgrims, but no, I was there because I was as needy as any of them. But I didn't know it. And for the rest of that time, the Lord did a work in my life I don't know how my family would have lived without. And there have been other events like this that show me I'm going through the motions and I never bother to tell myself that's what I'm doing until I'm awakened. And then the Lord is like, okay, now we're, now we're back on track. And when we allow ourselves to admit we need that grace, then we can give that grace because you, really, you can't give something that you don't really have. And when you really have it, it flows right out of you. I hope that helps. I hope the tangent wasn't too long either. Yeah. Um, I was one of those zombies she was talking about. <laughs> she may have been sitting in the back of A me in church. A popular movie genre these days. <laughs> you know. But, um, you know, I had always been searching, but uh, uh, I definitely... I attended one of the Defend the Faith conferences at Franciscan University uh, last Wait, summer. Let me clarify something. I did not pay him to say this. <laughs> Sister Annie knows that. <laughs> but <clears throat> I think what I got, got to witness there was the excitement of the Catholic faith. And I think that's the kind of thing that we need to see for ourselves, to experience ourselves, to find that excitement and to bring it back to our parishes. And uh, I can tell you now, when my, my son sits in the pew with me now and he sees me reading along and, 
enjoying the Mass and not worrying about how long the sermon is or how many other interruptions there are during the Mass. He's like, Dad, what's up with you? He said, you know, you were the first one out the door all the time. I said, I know, I just can't wait to hear the next reading and I can't wait <clears throat> to uh, experience so the sacrifice is, of the Mass. This is not a question. This is an example of what I've been talking about all evening. Right. <clears throat> but I, it, it, you. you have to experience it for yourself. Wherever you do it, experience it and take it back to your parish. Thank you, brother. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, hi. Um, I have three children, which is just a failure in your eyes, I'm sure, um, with your six. Oh, so I have, three yeah, I have three kids, and so the, the major focus Thank now, and I... openness to life. <laughs> of course. Um, my question to you would be, what did you find, uh, and I will look at the book that you made reference to, because the, my kids are faced with questions and trouble, and to be pulled away from the church as they get older into high school and college, I'm sure. What did you find as a parent was most important besides being a good friend, besides studying and really knowing your faith, that you could be able to share it with them, to keeping them, uh, like, are your well, first six... First of all, let yes. me just clarify this. Our family is far from perfect, beginning with their father. Uh, I go to confession every week, at least, and they never say, oh, Dad, you go to confession too much. My wife doesn't say that either. <laughs> I would say this, that a typical family, we've gone through all kinds of crises, We've reached an impasse time and again. One of the things that I did starting about, oh, 20-some oh, years ago is I announced the Day of Jubilee when I could tell that we couldn't solve the crimes that had been committed. And so I told them at dinner, tomorrow, if you come clean with anything you've done, you will go unpunished. And Kimberly's like, what? I'm like, trust me. And the next morning, my oldest son came in. Were you serious? I'm like, yeah, and out it came. And I realized, no wonder your younger brother wants to kill you. <laughs> You know, and what are you going to do now? And I said, I'm going to pray with you, and I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to ask you, what are you going to do? And he gave all the stuff back, and three hours later, his younger brother came. By dinner, she's like, what kind of magic did you work? This was before she'd become a Catholic. And I'm like, I did, as a father, what God does with his children in this family we call the church. We've done it over a hundred times. Now the kids know they can ask for a day of jubilee. I've explained the year of jubilee is when all debts are forgiven. The day of Jubilee is when all debts will be forgiven if, if you come and clean. And we've had all kinds of issues. We've talked with them about sex and drugs and drinking and swearing and all these issues with the internet, with pornography. Five boys, one girl, let's face it. We didn't escape anything. Uh, now, thanks be to God, you know, our oldest son is 31 and he's getting a PhD in theology at Notre Dame and teaching his old man a lot of things that he never learned. Uh, raising their, their fourth grandchild is on the way, but he went through things in high school and college that leave his friends saying, look at where he is, that isn't his parents, that's Almighty God. And our 29-year-old Gabriel was a focused missionary the last four years, they had their fourth child, he's now in business to support a big family. But I mean, people who knew him also said, that, you know, no way, and Hannah, uh, and then Jer and Joe, they're both thinking about the priesthood now, but I mean, uh, none of them were as bad as their dad was at their ages. But, you know, the fact is, what we figured out a few years back, after it mostly had happened, was that, you know, 
we fight, we struggle, we pray, you know, and we do a family rosary as much as we can. We have family dinners as much as we can. We have uh, morning prayer as much as we can, but days can go by without it. I'm, I'm, I pray a blessing over my kids. I use holy water. I pray to their guardian angels. I'm like Woodstock. I do what I can. But, you know, it's never enough. I always feel inadequate, and sometimes I feel like a failure. And then my oldest son and his, and his younger brother, they, they said, the one thing you never stop doing is you never stopped enjoying the faith. And then as Gabriel said, I never knew the Bible growing up like you thought we did. All I knew is that someday when I get to know it, it is going to be something I love. And now it is. But that's why the joy of the Lord is our strength. When we enjoy the faith, we don't have to be able to explain it all. But if we enjoy it, that's what people are looking for, especially our family members. And if we don't enjoy it, I told my son this morning when we tried to do morning prayer, you know, I struggle with this. I wake up and I'm weary, I'm distracted. I, I just, I need to be jump-started like a dead battery. He's looking like, I'm like, put me to a polygraph, I'll pass with flying colors, I'm telling you the truth. You know, and, and he knows the point is, you need it too, David, you know. But I, I, I think that's the key. Uh, there is no one formula that will work, you know, no one size that fits all except joy. And even if people experience our joy, they might still exercise their freedom in the wrong way. But in the long haul, our prayers and our sacrifices for them, plus the joy that they see. You know, my parents are, are older, but they're almost more in love with our Lord. They're enjoying being Catholics more than when I was a kid and they made us pray a rosary or something. That will not go unheeded. And so that's what I would say, you know, th that there's no one thing except for this thing. And that is what we all need. I hope that helps. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Sure. We got, I think, maybe time for one or two more. Okay. Okay. Um, as a, uh, a young Catholic, I've noticed that uh, with other young people, it's, it's become very polarized with there's the young Catholics that are very on fire and excited and then uh, ones that are very anti um, just any kind of faith in their lives um, and your friend Chris you know he was seeking the Lord and you know you kind of were able to direct him but in terms of the new uh, evangelization especially with young people in the United States you talked about consumerism there's so much allure around them you know there's people that really have no interest in it you know what some ways, you know, to go about that, to bring up those conversations, um, you know, with the new evangelization. Yeah. There'd be maybe 10 different ways to address that good question. The thing that pops into my mind is what I find most often in my conversations with young people, whether they're high school or undergraduates or, you know, out of college, and that is marriage, sexuality, our society today that's redefining a lot of stuff we didn't see coming down the pike. And I would say, here again is another opportunity for the new evangelization. Because, you know, when you just pursue sex for pleasure, it's like drinking salt water to slake your thirst. Eventually you start burning up, you burn out, you know. It, it might satisfy it, you know, quickly, but then all of a sudden it leaves you really drier than before. I remember as a Protestant, taking a doctoral seminar from a Jesuit priest who was also a very famous lawyer at Marquette. He taught in the law school as well as theology. We were talking about the public square and what role religion plays and what role it doesn't, and he interrupted himself in the middle of the lecture. I don't think he expected to. It was like a throwaway line that he probably didn't ever say before. He said, you know, come to think of it, if Catholic couples just lived out the sacrament of matrimony, 
for like 40 years, the effect would be to Christianize society more than all these debates and laws. Oh, I, I digress. And he went back and I don't remember what he returned to. All I remember thinking as a Protestant, it's a sacrament. If people lived it out, because it, it was occurring to us at the time that sexuality from the Catholic perspective is so much more than it is for non-Christians and even non-Catholic Christians. You know, I remember hearing Dr. Ruth say on the radio to this 15-year-old guy who was describing the fact that he was fornicating with his 14-year-old girlfriend, but they were contraceptive. You know, they were using condoms. Oh, that's good. I'm thinking, when I was 15, Campbell's soup was good. You know, not fornication. When she found out that he used contraceptive, oh, that's great. I'm thinking, frosted flakes were great. You know, this woman's lying to these kids. You know, I turned it off. I'm like, what's wrong with this picture? And then suddenly it occurred to me, sex isn't good or even great. It's sacred. It's holy. Nothing else we do with our bodies makes us more like God than when the two become one. Nine months later, you might have to come up with a name because that little baby is the incarnation of the one that Kimberly and I became. And we didn't think it through. We didn't see it coming. But the one that we became was so much more than just the really warm, fuzzy feelings or the anniversary gifts and cards and chocolates. And to me, when we hear people say, sex is just for pleasure and marriage is just for sex, we're like, okay, you can call it that. You can redefine it that way. But let me clarify one thing. That's not what we mean by marriage. What we mean by marriage is a sacramental mystery whereby two people unite with their bodies and souls and produce a family that images the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So whatever the laws are, the reality is much deeper and much more different. And it's not just, you know, not salt water. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the new wine. This is what people are really longing for. And we've got to take it in before we can share it with them in a way that they're going to find convincing. And in the meantime, we ought to be involved in the politics and the education and all of the social issues. But even more, we've got to be going home and, and, and acknowledging that we've got to renew the wellsprings of our own marriages and families. And, you know, for, as you pointed, young people. Young people have got to look and say, okay, the options have never been more stark in contrast. You know, this is what yes. they say, and that is what Christ has taught and the church has maintained. This is what I need. It's not going to be easy. The fact is, it isn't just homosexual or same-sex attraction that is hard to understand. Why did you make me this way? I remember getting married and finding out that I could still lust after other women and saying to God, why did you make me this way? I'm weak. And he was like, yeah, like everybody else. You need my strength. And if we have the joy and the honesty and the humility, I think, you know, our Lord might use us to draw a lot of young people back to say, you know, it might not be timely, but it's timeless, and it's true. I don't know if that answers it, but, you know, that's one, one approach, one of the ten, I guess, you know. One more? Okay. Help me here. I don't see our friend Mike. There we are. Okay. This is more of a comment than a question, and it goes to cradle Catholics. I, was, I converted. I went through our CIA. I was curious how many people here also did that. Because I did that, I learned so much, and I appreciate it so much, and every time I come to Mass, I'm very mindful of what we're doing and why. 
and this is not a slam against cradle Catholics, I just do find that so many don't know why they're doing what they're doing, and that does make it hard to evangelize. You can't say, well, we do this, and it's because, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I've also found that when I have an opportunity to share my faith and why it's right for me and approach it in that way, it's very non-threatening, like you say, but I also have um, had conversations where they say, wow, I never really thought about it that way. Right. That's really interesting. And recently I had a man come back. He knew he was going to be seeing me again. And he um, was a cradle Catholic, and he ended up handing me your book, Rome Sweet Home, which really made my year because he said, you know, talking to you had me go think about it, find some resources, and start reading about it and learning more. And thank you. Well, I'm grateful. Yeah. I, and, if I uh, didn't know so me, I might you. be impressed. But, uh, <laughs> I'm impressed with our Lord. And but I just thank you for doing what you do and giving us also tools. To, um, <laughs> reading your books has given me information to where I can go out and talk to other people, Catholic and You're non-Catholic. You're welcome. But that's so. like thanking a kid for opening a candy store. It's <laughs> too much fun not to, you know. Three things I'll say real briefly. First of all, to all your cradle Catholics, thank you for holding down the fort and for keeping the light on so that when I finally found my way home, you were there. And the fact is, I have found that the most, some of the most fulfilled upright, spirit-filled Catholics are the cradle Catholics. You know, uh, still waters run deep. You know, not all that glitters is gold. You might see some, you know, guy wooing a gal on a date, you know, with chocolates and flowers. You might see another older couple hardly exchanging words, but they're celebrating their 40th anniversary. And with their eyes, they communicate so much more love. And I have found that with cradle Catholics with lay people, with, with clergy, with religious, you know, um, so thank you. The second thing is this, that as converts, we still are converting. And the third thing is that cradle Catholics are also converts. We all are. And so, you know, I think at the end of the day, our hearts are filled with gratitude for the cradle Catholics and the converts and the recognition that conversion is something that really represents a job description for each and every single one of us. I think I see the sign of the time. <laughs> and so it's time for me to step down. From the bottom of my heart, I just want to say thank you so much. Also, one last thing for your family members. The one thing that I have done that I have found more helpful than anything else was a book that Archbishop Chaput asked me to write. I agreed to as long as he wrote the foreword. It's called Understanding the Scriptures. They transformed this tight manuscript with all this beautiful artwork maps and charts and sacred art into a really beautiful text. We use it now as we have with all of our kids and so it's available and I would really encourage you if you want to take home the beauty of the truth of the Catholic faith, you know, take advantage of the resources that are out there. Again, what a joy it's been for me to share with you and now I want to hand it over to our Sister Annie. God bless. God, I really want to thank you for uh, this enlivening talk on the new evangelization. My mother used to say to us, I'm one of 13 kids, and she used to say, if you're happy, please inform your face. <laughs> Be happy about what we have and the richness that we have, and that will attract others. So, Scott, thank you for your words. And thank you all for taking the time to be here this evening. We greatly appreciate it, and we hope that you leave on fire and share your faith. 
We have books in the back if you'd like to um, purchase any of these wonderful books or uh, CDs, and also to let you know that this has been taped and it's on the Saints John and Paul webpage if you'd like to share it with your friends. So again, thank you all for being here and for you, Dr. Scott Hahn.